Listener warning. This episode deals heavily with the themes of child and human trafficking, sexual abuse, and child abuse. Discretion is advised. I'm Dave Baker. And I'm Andrew Price. Welcome to Deep Cuts, the podcast where we pick a topic and walk you through the ins, the outs, and the nitty-gritty, so you can appear like an interesting and idiosyncratic person at your next forced social function. Today's topic is... QAnon Part 5, The Final Frontier, Electric Boogaloo, The New Blood in Space. What is QAnon Part 5, The Final Frontier, Electric Boogaloo, The New Blood in Space? It's a massive conspiracy theory movement that began in 2017 and purported that there was a secret insider in the U.S. military known only as Q, leaking info to the public through the internet image boards 4chan and 8chan about how then-president Donald Trump was secretly working behind the scenes toppling a hidden cabal of satanic, pedophilic, baby-eating villains, largely comprised of Democrats, celebrities openly critical of Trump, wealthy Jewish business owners, and entrepreneurs like George Soros and the Rothschilds. In the last Mainline episode, we covered the tail end of 2018, when QAnon rocketed into mainstream popularity, until the end of 2019, when it seemed like the movement had run its course, and was on the verge of collapsing. And now, we head into the final stretch of this saga, when QAnon, a conspiracy theory movement veering towards obscurity and irrelevance because of the sheer incompetence and aimlessness of the people who were propagating it, is given a new life, made more popular than ever, and ultimately leads to a near total breakdown of civilized society in the United States, all on account of a global pandemic. Fauci is a sociopath and a liar. He had nothing to do with the vaccine. The father of the vaccine is Donald J. Trump. What is Fauci the father of? Fauci's the father of the actual virus. Fauci's the guy. This virus, according to Bob Redfield at the Centers for Disease Control, came from the Wuhan lab. And basically, we had Fauci not only funding that lab with American taxpayer dollars, he authorized this thing called gain-of-function research. He allowed the Chinese Communist Party, the People's Liberation Army, to genetically engineer a virus using gain-of-function. I call it the Fauci virus now. If he wants to be the father of something, he's the father of the virus that's killed over half a million Americans. Well, Peter, we're still trying to get to the bottom of that, and we're definitely going to bring you back when we get more more information on it um, but you're right there's a lot of questions out there peter i can't thank you enough for joining me today they can, these people cannot cannot allow america to get better nor can they allow america to hear good news it must be all bad news from now until the election frankly ladies and gentlemen that's sedition they are sacrificing lives in order to defeat donald trump ladies and gentlemen that's sedition it's also call it what you will but when they let somebody get sick and die there's one what is up guys q talk here so let's talk a little bit about the coronavirus so a bunch of very fast people got on this immediately and started digging to see if they could figure out what the origins of this coronavirus is and guess what they discovered they actually found that there are patents held 
on the coronavirus by a group known as the Pure Bright. Alarming, some media outlets publish these same fake stories without checking facts first. The sharing of biased and false, false news has, has become, become all, all too common, common on, on social, social media. media. More alarming, some media outlets publish these stories that this is extremely dangerous to our Check democracy. In my other videos, you'll see that I've been having a pretty wild time out here in Westworld working on this QAnon project. QAnon is a military intelligence operation, the first of its kind. One that uses space-age quantum technology to post messages from the future to internet forums in the present. It's kind of like that movie, The Frequency, with Dennis Quaid, except with a quantum computer. I'm so scared! I'm so, like right by Hell's Kitchen! I'm like right by Hell's Kitchen, you guys! So I'm terrified that they're gonna hurt me! Different. I've always known this is a this is a real, this is a pandemic. I felt it was a pandemic long before it was called a pandemic. All you had to do is look at other countries. I think now it's in almost 120 countries all over the world. When we're finished with the virus, we will win. We will win. And when that victory takes place, our economy is going to go through the roof. It is so pent up. It is so built up. It is so ready to go uh, in, a, in an upward direction. Uh, but we have to knock out this enemy. Send them, send them, send them. Act 7. I never want to talk about QAnon again after this. So picture this. QAnon is a baby, born on October 28th of 2017. It spends the next couple of years in the early stages of infancy, slowly developing its ability to see, process the images it's seeing, and interact with its surroundings. Its world is new, and it hasn't quite figured out how to exist within it. But that baby is also growing at 10 times speed, into an unholy abomination like some kind of freakish Robin Williams from the movie Jack. So you've got this bloated Cronenbergian baby monster man who, in the year 2020, is simultaneously entering into its terrible twos, but also going off to college, but also entering into the workforce, but also ascending to take its eldritch throne as the old one horror god of our universe. The movement is about to become more than just a misshapen and concerning blemish on the back of the country that we should probably get checked out. It's about to fill in and infect every aspect of society, from politics to corporations to public health to the very fabric of discourse. It's going to break down the very way we communicate, hack into our brains, and reprogram the way we view each other. It's growing up, and the growing pains are somehow ours to bear. In late 2018, we witnessed the first flirtation between American politics and QAnon, and it was relatively small and inconsequential. Outgoing California Councilwoman Pam Patterson quoted Hugh during her farewell speech before leaving office. It wasn't that big of a deal, and it ultimately felt more goofy and bizarre than like a genuine thing to be concerned about. But things were a lot different in 2020. On January 7th, Media Matters, a far-right watchdog group, published a list of QAnon supporters running for Congress. These were people who either referenced Q at some point on social media, shared Q-related or sympathetic messages, or outright expressed their belief in the QAnon conspiracy. There were 98 of them. Two of them would go on to win, but we'll get to that later. QAnon also started incorporating large societal institutions into the Quanon as well. Mostly focusing on individual politicians, celebrities, and wealthy families in the past, they now wanted to weave a larger story about how every aspect of our culture was part of a well-oiled deep state machine. 
In early January, it was discovered by QAnon followers that the Disney Magical Kingdom Cruise Line had been offering excursion trips to Jeffrey Epstein's private island for kids prior to his massive reckoning. Q followers then connected it to a video leaked by far-right activist group Project Veritas that showed ABC News journalist Amy Roback, the reporter that had put together the first expose on Jeffrey Epstein three years prior to the bombshell report released by Julie K. Brown that led to his arrest, complaining about how ABC had buried her story. I've had the story for three years. I've had this interview with Virginia Roberts. We would not put it on the air. Um, first of all, I was told, who's Jeffrey Epstein? No one knows who that is. This is a stupid story. Um, then the palace found out that we had her whole allegations about Prince Andrew and threatened us a million different ways. Um, we were so afraid we wouldn't be able to interview Kate and Will say, oh, that we that also quashed the story. And then, um, and then Alan Dershowitz was also implicated in because of the planes. She told me everything. She had pictures. She had everything. She was in hiding for 12 years. We convinced her to come out. We convinced her to talk to us. Um, it was unbelievable what we had. Clinton. We had everything. I, I tried for three years to get it on to no avail. And now it's all coming out. And it's like these new revelations. And I freaking had all of it. I, I, I'm so pissed right now. Like every day I get more and more pissed because I'm just like, oh my God. We, it was, um, what, what we had was unreal. Other women backing it up. Hey, yep. Brad Edwards, the attorney, three years ago saying, like, aunt, like, we, there will come a day when we will realize Jeffrey Epstein was the most prolific pedophile this country has ever known. And I had it all three years ago. So that's uh, that's quote unquote hot mic footage, some footage of a camera rolling in between shooting of some kind of the show that she was on, where she's basically reacting to the discussion around the Jeff Jeffrey Epstein trial. And she's the Amy Roback is the journalist that we talked about in the previous episode, where three years before the expose that came out from Julie K. Brown that caused the chain reaction of events that led to him being arrested and tried for all his crimes. She had basically done the exact same story with more or less the same survivors that Julie K. Brown had, but that it was the story was buried by ABC for like political reasons. They didn't want to get sued by the royal family because Prince Andrew was involved and they didn't they wanted to be able to like interview Will and Kate. So they buried the story. So Project Veritas got a hold of this footage and published it as an expose. And because ABC is owned by Disney, it all clicked into place. Disney was a part of the cabal. They were using this cruise line to ship children over to Epstein's island to load them into his underground trafficking dungeon. Never mind the fact that if the cruise was routinely taking children of paying customers and disappearing them into a trafficking ring, surely the parents would notice their kids were missing and report it? It all just made too much emotional sense. And don't get me wrong, while Project Veritas is largely a disinformation machine and its founder, James O'Keefe, is an absolute huckster provocateur without an ethically journalistic bone in his body, the leaking of this video just so happened to be good work. It's utterly ghoulish Epstein went on getting away with his crimes and abusing more kids for an additional three years because ABC was too afraid of going toe-to-toe -to -toe with the royal family's legal team and potentially didn't want to ruin their chances of getting to interview Prince William and Kate Middleton. We deserve to know about that and they deserve to be called out for it. But an idea that a cruise ship that was scooping up hundreds of the type of upper middle class children whose parents can afford a Disney cruise and selling them into a trafficking cabal and somehow nobody was noticing is just absurd. The other thing that's a little like sad and really dark about that clip is 
Yeah, I, I know what you're going to say, but go out. But I, I know what you're going to say, though. That uh, how self-centered it is, and it's not about the issue. It's about, they beat me to this. I wasn't the one that got to exploit all these poor kids being sexually trafficked. Damn it. I knew they were getting sexually trafficked, and I wanted the credit for it. Not, hey, finally somebody has the guts to do the thing that I've been trying to get this soulless shell of a corporation to do for three years. Yeah, I agree. I thought the exact same thing, but I honestly, I knew you were going to say it. I just let I was I just left it open for you to bring it up instead than of putting it into the script. But I exactly agree. I that's my that was my knee jerk reaction to seeing that footage or even just before I even saw the footage, whenever I had read about it, whenever I had read that she was angry about the whole situation to me, it immediately read, oh, like. She's just mad because she's not like getting the credit for the story. And and part of me is it would I feel like anybody might not be able to resist that temptation of feeling that way. Oh, like I fucking did this and somebody else just got the credit for it. But yeah, to make that the focus of it and focus it on, oh, I didn't get the credit for this. I didn't get the fame and the recognition for this. Not, oh, at l- finally this is happening is interesting to me. It's it really it's really interesting how uh, interesting is the wrong word. I believe despicable is the word. Even in a dynamic where you have these people that are like uncovering the crimes of these awful people and you have this dynamic of these people worked to expose this bad person. There's like still not necessarily a good guy because of the way that our culture has so warped the human condition to focus around the need for fame and money that even in a situation where you're doing this like objectively good thing you can't help but be corrupted by the need to capitalize off of it yeah the exploitation and commoditization of the good deed are the explicit point of it not the good deed itself in february in the most holy shit this is scary but also it seems pretty inevitable that this would have happened and i'm surprised it hasn't already happened move in the history of the movement a literal church of QAnon was founded omega kingdom Industries opened its virtual doors and started running multi hour Zoom sermons through the internet, where followers could log on and listen to pastors Russ Wagner and Kevin Bushy preach a tainted cocktail of Old Testament God fearing religion mixed with the prophecies and teachings directly from the boards of 8chan and 8kun. As part of his studies on religious extremism for a PhD program at Concordia University, Mark Andre Argentino spent months undercover attending these Zoom sermons. This is his description of how a typical session would go. The service begins with an opening prayer from Wagner where he says he will protect the Zoom room from Satan. This is followed by an hour-long Bible study where Wagner might explain the Fall Cabal video that attendees had just watched or offer his observations on socio-political events from the previous week. Everything is explained through the lens of the Bible and QAnon narratives. Bushy then does 45 minutes of decoding items that have appeared recently on the app called QMap that is used to share conspiracy theories. The last 15 minutes are dedicated to communion and prayer. Dear Lord, please protect this Zoom room from the nefarious machinations of the world. Please protect it from getting Zoom bombed, which I've been hearing a lot about. People are people are Zoom bombing. No dick pics, please. I say I say no dick pics, please, Lord. Please protect me from accidentally hitting a button that mutes myself. <laughs> I don't realize it. And so I'm talking for five minutes and I don't realize that nobody can hear me, but everyone's like too like awkward and they just don't want to say anything. So they just let me talk for five minutes before they finally speak up and say that they can't hear me. 
Please, God. I have a desire to not look like an asshole in front of my entire congregation of three people who've gotten up to use the restroom for the last 45 minutes, two children who've stumbled in here, I'm not sure how, and one grandmother. Please, God, please don't let me accidentally turn on a filter that makes my face into a kitty cat and it undermines the serious messages I'm delivering because I look so ridiculous because I've got a kitty cat face. Lord, I have followed you through the valley of darkness. I don't know if I can follow you into the valley of, oh my God, I've been turned into a potato. That's, that's so absurd, praying over a Zoom call. Why don't we, we, we need to be doing that. Why don't we do that? Uh, weren't you the one who, I think you were the one who told me that during the pandemic, no, it was you. Yeah, it was, you showed me this thing of during the pandemic, there's been a rise in the popularity of Zoom exorcisms there's a famous pastor i can't i'm trying to remember his name vic berger did a bunch of videos like compilations of him doing exorcisms like he was famous for doing exorcisms like in in church what the fuck is his name bob larson uh, yeah so bob larson he was famous for doing these exorcisms in church and there's like video compilations of it because they're like ridiculous and funny and during the pandemic he started doing them over Zoom. And so he posted, he has a YouTube channel, which go check it out, Bob Larson's YouTube channel, where he uploaded, I don't know if he still does it. We talked about maybe doing an episode about him, but I haven't looked into him for a while. But at least as of like last year, he was uploading Zoom exorcisms to YouTube, which is so funny because exorcisms are already just this weird kind of like mutual kayfabe thing where you have a, per, a a pastor or a priest or whatever it is doing this ritual and then a person whether it be by choice or by some kind of weird hypnotic tr transformative event or whether it be by the power of suggestion they start playing into it yeah in wrestling it's called selling andrew Yes, they play into it and they play the character of the f demon getting exercised from the person. Well, because there's people watching. You got to sell. Yeah. And that's already very theatrical when you see those things happen on stage. But there's something about the dynamic of the guy, the pastor, the exorcist being in one room and the other person being in a different room. Yeah, it breaks somewhere the else. Yeah. Speaking in tongues. We as humans can understand, we can understand the idea, even though it's weird when people like in Pentecostal revivals or whatever start speaking in tongues, which it is, it's fucking insane. We under, we can understand the kind of hysteria and emotional roller coaster that being in the same room with people can have. And there's a thrall that you can find yourself under where you're just going along with these things. And I think it makes that a little bit more believable. But when, like you're saying, you're separated and you're just talking over Zoom to each other, that emotional buy-in that you can believe that the charisma of the people in the environment are manufacturing this, even if you don't believe in, or if you do believe in the religious thing, all of that just breaks down completely when there's some, like, dude in New Mexico on his cell phone walking around his backyard going, and you're just like, this is, you're not being possessed. You're holding your cell phone. <laughs> you're not being possessed. 
Yes, I'm a demon. I hope I don't mute myself and I'm talking for five minutes and I don't realize it, but nobody can hear me. It's just like, it's yeah, it's just so unfortunate. The church is a part of what he calls the neo-charismatic home church movement, a decentralized network of independent churches operating off of the Protestant Christianity template, but that reject mainstream religion, typically embrace conspiratorial thought and operate similar to destructive cults reaching out into the computer rooms of America and gaining followers without any of them even having to leave the house today throughout our teaching today and behind that of course is lucifer that's why we call this religion that uh they're practicing luciferianism you can google that and look it up if you want luciferianism this is like a powerpoint presentation that's happening in this church sermon it's called the layers of the deep state and it's just explaining what the deep state is politicians that are the most uh, vocal in criticizing president trump uh, news anchor people, these are like uh, CNN, MSNBC, ABC, CBS, all the, all the, uh, what President Trump has called the fake news, the fake media, all of them, the anchors for all of them are uh, involved in this. And there's quite a few Hollywood stars. It's, Hollywood it's, stars. it's ridiculous. Looking at this PowerPoint presentation with these graphs, it's just so ridiculous. I don't, I, I genuinely don't get how anyone actually believes this. I just don't know how you can take it seriously when you're sitting there on Zoom listening to somebody do a PowerPoint presentation with like little graphs. Yeah, and the third and fourth it levels are a demonic entity, Lucifer. Like, it's just so, like, guys, come on. The church is part of a larger network of independent congregations called Home Congregations Worldwide, run by Mark Taylor, a, quote, Trump prophet, who claims to have predicted the rise of Trump back in 2011. And though the OKM started in February, there are reasons why a Zoom-based conspiracy church, accessible from inside the safety of your own home that stokes fear and paranoia, might end up taking off and becoming more relevant in the coming months of 2020. Something that was also becoming more illuminated about the Q followers in the dawn of 2020 was just how sad they were. A lot has been said, largely by the types of neoliberal publications and people who think that the answer to this whole mess is mockery and condescension, about how mentally ill or unstable Q believers are. And certainly there's likely strains of mental illness running through the movement. You need only look to the cases like Bucky Wolf from the last episode, who murdered his brother because he thought he was a lizard monster. Or some of the incidents we'll explore later to see that. But this movement is not defined by mental illness. It's not a, quote, collective delusion, as people would take to referring to it. It's not a bunch of crazy people. And by the way, even if it was a movement of millions of mentally ill people, public mockery and degradation would especially still not be the answer. It's an outlet for crushingly sad and frustrated people who are looking for a mental escape from their lives. We all have our own personal brand of how the fuck do I make myself feel like I'm anywhere but here right now. We just don't typically have a network of grifter influencers churning our mind palaces through an algorithm and commodifying them into psychic morphine to feed back to us in a slow drip. If you want to call it insanity, call it medically induced insanity, teed up by megacorporations who slowly indoctrinated us into centering our lives around their social platforms, only to allow bad actors to slip in and corrupt those channels of communication with zero repercussions. I say all of this to say that I share these examples not to make fun of these people, but to simply illuminate how we tend to think of these people in the vacuum of their social media presence. We fall into the same trap that people do when they look at celebrities and friends through the lens of their curated social media identities, and mistakenly assume that's who they are. In the same way, we view them as tinfoil hat-wearing names 
maniacs constantly ranting about outlandish misinformation, when in reality, a majority of their lives are probably more defined by sadness, isolation, and emptiness. It's not to excuse the spreading of misinformation and the seedier aspects of this belief system at all, but I just want to really get across in this series that the let's mercilessly mock these people route that we all seem to have collectively decided is the right thing to do is just not. Here are several confessional posts from Q followers on platforms like Vote, the quote-unquote free speech Reddit competitor that's actually just a far-right conspiracy theory haven, and Twitter as curated by Mike Rothschild in his February blog post, The Unbearable Sadness of Q. I can't watch movies anymore. I used to love movies. Almost all music is ruined. I can't have a normal conversation without getting bored or frustrated. So, I just stay alone most of the time. Nothing is genuine. But strangely, I'm happy and no longer scared of anything. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, really? Are you, though? Really? Doesn't seem like that. Google DoubleThink. Pretty much, I have to live my life identifying the manipulation and expected response and knowing when to choose to go against it or speak against it. At work, I've remained beautifully neutral, but... It's harder with friends and loved ones. Almost all of them are still asleep. My wife is aware of my views on a few issues, but I think she writes it off as old man and his conspiracy theories. It makes you feel alone in the world, but then there's vote, and there are other people out there who are awake and live the struggle. Stay vigilant, fellow voter. This is a Facebook post from a dude named Donnie Merbles. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. My children have chose not to include me in festivities this year because their minds are not open to the truth, and I am thankful for President Trump and the Where We Go One, We Go All family. If anyone else is spending today by themselves, I'd be happy to exchange photos of our meals. Oof. Just wait. Oof. Am I reading the comments too? Yeah, read the comments. So it has it has 48 likes or 48 reactions to it. One person says, you're not alone. None of my family or my three kids talk to me anymore. I will not beg them to call. Hell, I'll be dead for a few months before they even know. Being conservative is lonely sometimes. Jesus. Here's another. Oh, my God. <laughs> yep. Just. Oh, my God. Okay, so this next person says, my older boy has been 20 miles away for five years. I haven't seen him, and I'm not chasing. Happy Thanksgiving. Oof. And then this last one, which just, I just, this doesn't even seem real. This is, this feels like uh, somebody trolling, but it's not. Now you, you can tell from her name that she's 70. Yeah. So this person's name is Denise, and I won't even say their last name because this is just so sad. And Denise wrote, Thanksgiving dinner. It was delicious and just had seconds about 10 minutes ago. Smiley face emoji. Oh my God. So the photo, the photo is a white towel spread across is that on is it on a bed what is it on it's on the it's on the ground it's on the floor i think like on the carpet it's a, a white like hand towel spread across the floor and on it is two pieces of white bread with spicy hot doritos on one slice of the bread and a piece of bologna on the other side it's so sad it's Jesus Christ. It's it's the saddest image that I've ever seen, I think. I personally don't care about Thanksgiving. Yeah, I like spending time with family and that's cool, but some people love the tropes of Thanksgiving. They love ham and turkey and mashed potatoes and whatever and I'm just not a those those foods are fun. I and it's fine. I'm just agnostic about the whole tradition. It doesn't really do anything for me personally. It's just not my bag. I like Halloween. I like even some parts of Christmas, maybe. The only real idea of a secular Thanksgiving 
that has hopefully extended outside of its initial colonialist trappings is like being around with your family, being thankful for things and eating a good meal. And the fact that this person is so alone and eating what is objectively, you could get McDonald's and that would be a better meal than this. It's bad. It's bad. like Mc- McDonald's on Thanksgiving is really sad, but that's like a $4 meal. And that is objectively not as sad as this. It's a dry white bread bologna and Dorito sandwich. What the fuck? That is... On a towel. It's one of those things where I don't know whether I want to gag or start crying. Or both. Probably both. Both seems like the right move. In late February, Laura Trump, Donald Trump's daughter-in-law and a senior advisor to his re-election campaign, tweeted a Joe M. video called The Best is Yet to Come which essentially was just a Trump speech with generic footage of oceans and dramatic orchestral music set over it. Joe M really just, he squandered his potential. In the early stages, yeah, he's doing a lot. He's making these high quality videos. He's a visionary within his craft. And then he just rested on his laurels. Then on February 25th, Disney CEO Bob Iger announced he was stepping down from the company. QAnon immediately made the connection between the Disney cruise that had been traveling to Epstein Island and the fact that Iger had previously had a meeting with Prince William and Kate Middleton, highlighting the fact that William's uncle, Prince Andrew, had visited Epstein Island multiple times. And exactly a year ago to the day, Q posted this drop. February 25th, 2019. Who will be the next to fall post Weinstein? Big name coming? Nobody is safe dark to light. These people are sick. Q. Q followers speculated that because of the supposed connections and because Q had referenced another big name falling exactly a year prior, or in other words, a one-year Delta Q proof, that Iger was going to be outed as the next Weinstein level monster. And he was abruptly quitting Disney to either flee the country or because he had already been detained by Trump and Q and was trying to keep it under wraps. However, there were three key details left out of this narrative. First off, Iger wasn't quitting the company. He was stepping down as CEO and moving into a position as executive chairman at the company until 2021 before fully retiring. Second, Iger had announced this whole plan the previous year in 2019, laying out in an investor's meeting that he'd be stepping down as CEO and retiring in 2021. And last, the text from Q's drop in 2019 was actually specifically in reference to Patton Oswalt. The full Q drop includes these screenshots. The angry at tweet from my hammer toed followers opened my eyes pedophobe shaming hurts us all i am a proud pedophile clip that audio bite for later use god damn you that was that's a tweet from Patton oswald from 2013 at 12 35 p.m this next one from also from 2013 from november 4th 2013 is my dong is super friendly and loves getting rubbed by children hashtag career ending twitter typos the next Patton oswald from oh there's no date on this one Went on a hunt and caught this tasty morsel. Booyah! Tagged at Comet Ping Pong. At Comet Ping Pong is circled. And you've got Patton Oswalt holding up the camera in the background. He's got his wife, Meredith Salinger, and then a kid, which is his fucking daughter. But presented in this context, it was just said that it was some random kid. Oswalt was immediately spun into the Quanon based on these drops, and thousands of Q believers took to relentlessly harassing him online for months. The first tweet from 2013 was, of course, an admittedly lewd joke where Oswalt is saying that he no longer wants to make fun of people's feet and instead wants to embrace feet and uses wordplay to create a pun where he comedically claims to now be a pedophile because ped is the Latin root word that means foot. The joke is that he doesn't realize that pedophile has a whole other, much more unfortunate meaning. The second tweet, 
also from 2013, where he says, My dong is super friendly and loves getting rubbed by children, is part of a series of jokes he made on that same day with the hashtag career-ending Twitter typos, where the joke is that he meant to say, My dog is super friendly and loves getting rubbed by children, but accidentally misspelled dog as dong, which gave his sentence an entirely new, darker meaning. And it, it, it hurts to have to explain those jokes. Especially because they're not even that funny. Yeah, yeah, they're not. That's that's what I'm going to say right now. But yeah, it's just they're obviously jokes. Any person is more than welcome to find these jokes in poor taste or inappropriate. We're all entitled to our opinion. You can even speak up and say that you find the jokes to be inappropriate if you're so inclined. But they are obviously not evidence that Oswald is a literal, actual pedophile unless you are disingenuously taking them literally or you're very dumb. This is what I talked about in a previous episode. We we talked with a couple people about this in our interviews. I talked about this idea that with situations like this Pat Oswalt thing, like obviously considering the belief system that these people operate off of, the jokes about pedophiles are not funny to them. They do not find them amusing. And Pat Oswalt made these jokes in 2013 when, and this isn't to say that it was it was right or whatever. I'm not somebody being like, oh, back in the day, people didn't take things ser- so seriously or whatever. But all I'm saying is that at this time in 2013, it was very popular to make these like edgelord shock like shocking jokes. I'm going to say the most like shocking thing. And the funny part is how over the line I've gone. You had all kinds of comedians back then doing the same thing. Anthony Jeselnik and Daniel Tosh, all the Comedy Central roasts. Those got really popular around that time. That was the style of comedy, regardless of whether it was good or bad or funny or not funny. That was what people were doing. And in this context, he made these jokes. And clearly the QAnon people are offended by them. They do not find them funny. But because they're so all in on being anti-PC, anti-politically correct, and being critical of cancel culture didn't really exist at this time, I don't think. But something, the, the analog to that, because they're so all in on that belief system, they can't admit to themselves or say out loud, I find this joke offensive because it would go against this position that they've taken on this matter for years. So instead, they're like, how do I express offense at this, but not admit that I am also a snowflake that gets offended by things like everybody in the world does? I will say that he's a literal, actual pedophile, and that's why it's offensive. There's also there's also the left does that same thing too but there's just a different version of it where the like i remember during the during the james gunn fallout of like him making tweets and pedophile jokes resurfacing after guardians 2 came out or whatever year that was that they pulled guardians 3 they weren't going to do it and it happened that weekend over san diego comic-con i remember a bunch of my left-leaning friends Basically saying, like, where there's smoke, there's fire, and agreeing with the idea that if James Gunn habitually is joking about pedophilic stuff, then he's definitely actually a pedophile. And he's like, what? I'm not saying, I'm, A, I'm not defending him. I think the jokes were bad. B, I just, do you, you really think that because somebody makes, like, a pedophile joke, that they're definitely like subconsciously processing a desire to have sex with children? That doesn't make any sense to me. I I honestly don't know that much about James Gunn. Maybe there are allegations there that I'm not aware of. But to me, the tweet stuff that I saw was in poor taste. It was bad. It was from like 10 years ago. He apologized for it. And then 
a bunch it was just so surprising to me to have so many of my far left friends be like yeah he's he jokes about this all the time man where there's smoke there's fire he's definitely doing some weird stuff and it's like hey i don't know man he just seems like a shitty dude who loves comic book stuff and like probably isn't that sensitive because he grew up in a time where people weren't that sensitive that's all that seems to me the same exact thing as the Patton Oswalt thing. Like the whole concept of what he was doing was like, I'm just, I'm that guy who just goes there. I say some crazy shit that, and I don't care how much it offends anybody. And my whole like comedic persona is based around the fact that I just, I go like way too far. And I say that thing that nobody wants to say, but I'll say it. I'll, I, I have no filter. That was, that was his whole like comedic persona. And that makes total sense because he started out working for Troma, which is like that company is just that as a movie production studio. That That's their whole thing. There's a Troma film that's like about uh, a guy who he's like driving home from a party with his wife and daughter and he like hates his wife because she's like a nag. But then he loves his daughter. Then they get into a car accident and the daughter dies. But then the wife is like horribly mangled but she survives. And so he has to end up like taking care of her. She's like an amputee. She has no arms, no legs. She can't talk. And she has to be like fed through like a funnel in her like disfigured mouth. And then he just hates her and he wishes she would die. And then he starts like seeing visions of his dead daughter and she starts telling him to like murder hookers. So he goes off on a killing spree. And while he's going off on the killing spree, he leaves his wife home with a home nurse and the home nurse starts sexually assaulting her. And it's like the movie, this movie is not a, there's no story to this. It's just designed of what's the most fucked up shit I could possibly cram into a film. Like that is the ethos. James Gunn didn't make that movie, but that's the ethos of what trauma was. And that's where he came from. The Yeah. The kind of like fine point on that is that trauma is an exploitation movie company. And for a long time, James Gunn's personal brand was I am an extension of that exploitation idea. The exploitation in the classic kind of 1970s film version of it, which is just what's the most boobs, butts, blood, and genre tropes we can shove into two hours to get people to come into this that we can get for $200,000 or whatever to make our money back. And that's what his Twitter persona was. Like, he, as the guy who wrote Scooby-Doo, was like, no, I'm not just going to be the guy who wrote Scooby-Doo. Here's a pedophile joke. I'm edgy, blah, 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 blah. And I just, I don't know, man. Maybe there are, maybe there's, maybe I just haven't seen the right information. Maybe there's more stuff I need to do, I need to read. But if it's just the tweets that I saw, which were objectively offensive and not funny, that's one thing. If it's him using some epithets, that's another. If it's him (laughs) assaulting people, completely different story. I've never seen anybody come forward and be like, James Gunn was inappropriate with me. James Gunn did this to somebody I know. It's always just like, he said some really shitty stuff. Yeah, all right. Yes, he said some shitty stuff. That's cool. He should suffer the consequences from that. And I feel like he definitely has. And the other part of that, the second part of that, about that is that the whole thing was just a troll job. It was a psyop by Mike Cernovich, who's the guy we've talked about Mike Cernovich on a previous episode. He's the guy who was like, the big proponent for Pizzagate. He was the main guy who like popularized it. He was the guy that James Gunn was fighting with who brought up those tweets. 
And the whole thing was like, I'm going to weaponize the left's scrutiny over comments that people make to get him canceled by his own people. And it worked. Obviously, there was a reckoning and then he regained his standing or whatever. But in the short term, it worked. He got fired and you had people telling you things like that. That also that just completely fits into what I'm saying, which is like a big part of far right and alt right ideology is this idea that liberals and leftists are snowflakes that get are, are too sensitive about things and can't take a joke or cancel culture, blah, 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 blah. And maybe there are aspects of people being overly sensitive to things or whatever. Maybe there's everything isn't black and white. But for the most part, everybody is sensitive. Everybody is capable of becoming offended by something. Everybody has different things that they're offended by. They aren't always the same thing. Sometimes there's overlap. Sometimes they're completely different. But every human, like you aren't outside of the human condition to where you just are just like a fucking statue who just cannot be offended by anything. I'm sure there's plenty of people that like are maybe less offended by things than other people. But even then, there are things that can offend anybody. It's just it's a part of the human condition. And the idea of turning it into a, a, a part of your personality to like shit on people who get offended by things or are sensitive sometimes you're just setting yourself up for being a hypocrite because you are going to get offended by something at some point. The third image is just straight up fake. Even if it was actually real, if Oswald had genuinely taken a picture of himself and a child with the caption, went on a hunt and caught this tasty morsel, booyah, and tagged his location as being at Comet Ping Pong, there's nothing inherently wrong with that, considering that Comet Ping Pong is just a pizza restaurant and people frequently use metaphors of wanting to eat children to refer to how cute they are. However, the real image was taken at a movie theater, and the real caption for the post was, Selfie at hashtag Teen Titans Go movie premiere. Booyah! And the kid was his fucking daughter, who very recently went through the trauma of losing her mother after she died in her sleep. Leave this poor family who has experienced so much pain alone, you fucking maniacs. But at any rate, this was what Q was referring to in their drop. And so the idea that he had predicted the downfall of Bob Iger a year in advance is just factually incorrect and absurd. And remember 8chan founder Frederick Brennan? In late February, he found himself in some serious trouble. If you recall from previous episodes, Brennan had sold 8chan to Jim Watkins in 2015 and then moved to the Philippines to work for Watkins as a programmer on another image board he owned, 2Channel. However, the two quickly had a falling out, Brennan quit the company, and after a series of deadly shootings were tied directly to 8chan, he became a passionate online advocate for getting it shut down. In fact, he had succeeded in deplatforming 8chan only for Watkins to relaunch it as 8kun. One of Brennan's regular habits during this time was tweeting long threads of speculation and criticisms about Watkins. And around this time, he had made a post in which he claimed that Watkins was probably senile. This might have not been a big deal, but Brennan was still living in the Philippines, where there are very harsh libel laws in place. And because Watkins was also a citizen of the Philippines, he filed a report with police. Brennan was formally charged with committing, quote, cyber libel, and a warrant was put out for his arrest. Brennan panicked. He had a laundry list of physical disabilities, including brittle bone syndrome, that would make any visit to jail effectively a death sentence for him. And so, with the help of Colin Hoback, a filmmaker who was in the country shooting a documentary about QAnon at the time, he fled the country and returned to the United States. Brennan avoided jail, and he's still living in the U.S. to this day. Making fonts. 
In early March, Jim Watkins, along with a Project Veritas-connected lawyer named Benjamin Barr, created the Disarm the Deep State Super PAC, a political action committee dedicated to removing shadow government actors and to mobilize a community of patriots in order to remove power from deep state members. The Super PAC doesn't seem to have accomplished much and it's since become defunct. Things were getting a little stale for old Q. It was beginning to become the same old boring conspiracies over and over. Some politician or celebrity would condemn Trump. They'd get accused of being a deep state pedophile and harassed on Twitter ad infinitum. What started off as a relatively creative movement was starting to get a little repetitive. And then in walked Austin Steinbart, or as he became known, Baby Q. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. <laughs> baby Q, baby! Baby Q! Oh, baby Q, he's so cute. He's so cute. He's just like a diminutive chibi version of Q. He's just like, blood libel, blood libel, the Jews are evil. Oh, God, that's like scarier somehow. Austin started posting videos on his YouTube channel and sharing them around in Q follower spaces. His claims? He claimed to be a 29-year-old DIA agent who had been working in defense and cyber intelligence for the American government since he was 17 years old, and that he was directly involved in the QAnon operation, which secretly involved time travel. Yep. Sold. Let's just hear his pitch for what QAnon truly was. Welcome back, everyone. Today we're going to be talking a bit about my background and the angle that I'm coming at this from so that you can understand a little bit better about who you're dealing with. I'd like to start off stating for the record that this is the last thing I ever thought I'd be doing. I was happy to infiltrate, happy to collect evidence, happy to distribute that evidence anonymously, and happy to go get any bad guys. But making videos talking about myself seems totally antithetical to the Q ethos, and I kind of hate it. But the DIA and Q Plus are making me, so here goes nothing. My name is Austin Steinbart. I'm a 29-year-old DIA agent from oh, Chandler, man. Arizona. Can you just pause this for one second? I can't believe that anybody takes this seriously. I can't believe this. I can't, but what is his speech pattern? What is that? It's like a, a, an Arizona guy's attempt at sounding like a California surfer dude. He's just wearing like a shitty polo. And this is the, he's the type of guy that like in your high school US history class, like vehemently argues that the Civil War was states' rights. Oh, for sure. And it's like, it's, this isn't, uh, this isn't about race. Okay. This, this just really isn't about race. Like I'm, some of my best friends are black. Like it's not, it's not about that. That's not even an Austin Steinbart looks like. That's he's literally done that for sure. He's for sure done that. Yeah. Austin Steinbart looks like if an animated donkey was caricatured to be a human by a very talented middle schooler. Austin Steinbart looks like if Every person at the Reliant K concert that I went to in middle school because a kid that I met at school asked me to go was combined into a single person. Austin Steinbart looks like the type of person who refuses to eat Chipotle because he can't pronounce Chipotle. 
Austin Steinbart looks like an adult man attempting to convince the Hitler Youth recruiter that he's actually 16 and still capable of performing the duties of being a Hitler Youth. Austin Steinbart looks like if Jimmy Neutron got really into some weird eugenic science in his high school years. Any of my other videos, you'll see that I've been having a pretty wild time out here in Westworld working on this QAnon project. QAnon is a military intelligence operation, the first of its kind. One that uses space-age quantum technology to post messages from the future to internet forums in the present. It's kind of like that movie The Frequency with Dennis Quaid, except with a quantum computer. The main characters in the story are President Trump, Admiral Rogers, General Flynn, the DIA, myself, and Q+, the future commander of the future Space Force, augmenting himself with time-warping artificial intelligence and running point on this whole thing. Messages on the board serve several purposes. The first one is providing the public with a behind-the-curtains look at a live spy operation that is currently in progress. The second is to give me, personally, baby Q, hints as I complete this little nightmare scavenger hunt from hell that I've been on. Over the course of this mission, I've infiltrated hotels, data centers, top-secret document warehouses, and military bases. So some of the gobbledygook posted on those boards are actually direct messages to me personally containing hints for things I happen to be dealing with at a given time. Kind of like a giant live action escape room sort of thing. This guy's trolling, right? Like he has to be trolling. So wait, is the video that we just watched his actual uploaded video or is that a repost of a video? That no, it's a mirror. His, his channel was deleted, but this channel mirrored all of his videos. If, if you poke around, you can find a lot of QAnon videos on YouTube that had just been like mirrored by somebody else and then YouTube just didn't catch it. If you're talking about how low the view count is. That's, yeah, that's why I was curious. Yeah, no, the, the original videos did have a lot of views. He became like a minor celebrity within QAnon for a while. In a follow up video, he said this. But to be completely honest, I could care less what anyone thinks about me. Because I am going to be the new commander of the Space Force very soon. The real Space Force, not that fake Air Force one. Meaning you're kind of stuck with me. For the next 40 years at least. Whether you like it or not. I'm also rich as hell. Because the DIA let me use those time-warping instant messages to tip myself off to this thing called Bitcoin way back when it was just starting out. So I'm pleased to announce that we are not going to be gangbang or drug dealing anymore to fund our black ops. I'm actually just going to pay for them myself. Isn't that fun? I'm that loaded. So believe me if you don't want to. Makes no difference to me. I have a wicked smart smoking hot wife that's got my back no matter what. I'm building this huge palace in Cave Creek for us to live in, which I will link to below. And I'm bringing the Space Force headquarters out here to Arizona, which will be absolutely epic. So put that in your pipe and smoke it, haters. Because I'm not just associated with Q. I am Q. Me oh, personal. shit! This is my operation. The guy posting on the boards and running point on this whole operation is actually me in the future. Pretty crazy, right? Be on the lookout for official confirmation from the big man upstairs very soon. And in the meantime, all the annoying little parrots squawking, No, it comes! No, it comes! Can take a seat.
because it also says on that board that what he's q is him in the future but but he has a smoking hot wife what <laughs> i don't know what that part was and it's like a far away photo of him looks like he's in like a high school play what is that he's just like on a couch in a black void as we'll find out i don't think the smoking hot wife exists he's all but he's really rich though because he has bitcoin money and he's building a palace in cave creek andrew have you ever been to cave creek I maybe have driven through it. Bro, Cave Creek sucks. <laughs> That's the perfect headquarters for Space Force. My memory of Cave Creek is that it's like Seligman or like Surprise. It's like one of those tiny ass shitty like 400 people towns. Let me double check this because I feel bad if I'm shitting on some place that's not that, but I'm pretty sure... The fuck, bro? I'm from Cave Creek, and we're great. Cave Creek has a population of 5,670 people. That's not a lot of people. That is not a lot of people. We have more listeners than that. It's like on the north tip of Phoenix. It's like above above Glendale, Scottsdale, and Fountain Hills. So it's like a, a small, it's like a city... It's one of the cities that makes up Phoenix, but it's out there. I think it's actually a little bit more wealthy than I'm giving it credit for. It's really wealthy now that Baby Q lives there. Oh, yeah, all his Bitcoin money. Yeah, why Why would you, if you really could go back in time and give yourself a tip, why would you choose Bitcoin? Yes, Bitcoin, like people who have invested early in Bitcoin, like they genuinely did get very rich whenever Bitcoin blew up. But it's such an unstable currency that if you really had the pick of anything to give yourself a tip for in the past to get your, make yourself rich, I feel like there's just way better options than Bitcoin. More importantly, there's a moment in one of the videos where he does this. So in closing tonight, I'd like to show you all a video I shot at the Amen Clinic in LA. The place I do my fancy brain scans at. This is just like a hallway in his house. Or not, what? I would Those be are just file names. Trouble for Open up a brain scan document for Terry Bradshaw. Take a look. Well, what do we have here? He's scrolling through a folder of NFL players' brain scan information on a computer. This will be very interesting. Uh-oh. Looks like we have quite the jackpot. Look at all these names. I always wondered how those NFL games affected those athletes. So let's take a look, huh? Let this be a lesson in cybersecurity for all the unbelievably negligent doctors in the world, which is all of them. Make no mistake about that. There's his brain. Brain's a little holy, Roy. I'm not gonna lie. Also, he's wearing the same t-shirt in his, like, I'm filming myself hacking into this that he's wearing in the rest of the video. And he's like a racist Doug. He looks like a cartoon character. Oh my saying. God! <laughs> Dude, he's racist Doug. <laughs> this just blew your mind. He 100% is racist Doug. <laughs> oh my God. I feel so bad that I didn't think of that. But he's racist Doug. I it, It's so bummer. It's such a bummer to me that Arizona pops up so much in this Q shit. Like, I know that I already am like... Fuck that place. But now I'm just, this is just too much. There's just so many crazy people there, man. Yeah, there's no New Mexico mentions in this. Although there is those two fucking doctors in Bakersfield. 
who made that viral misinformation video about COVID. And Baby Q actually inspired a lot of Q people to start following him and believing his version of the story. He amassed thousands of subscribers on YouTube and even started living with about 10 of his most devout acolytes in his Arizona home. He literally started to become like a cult leader where he was living with 10 people who followed him on the internet and then just drove out to Cave Creek, Arizona and lived in, in his house with him. Needless to say, the existing Q influencers did not like him. Whether or not he was actually Q, considering that Q is not fucking real, he has just about as much likelihood of being behind the Q post as anybody else in the story. The old guard immediately started labeling him a grifter and a LARPer, just trying to get his 15 minutes of fame within the Q community. This guy claims he's Q. His obnoxious, narcissistic personality is the polar opposite of the team player, humble and mature tone of the Q posts. However, his personality does match that of other self-aggrandizing LARPers. Disclosure backpack. Just said that one. Austin Steinbart is a fake MAGA liar. He's not Q, and an intelligent person would know Q could confirm himself instantly in a moment with his posts slash trip by Dustin Nemos of Nemos News Network or whatever the fuck it's called. I hate that guy. Precisely as predicted, not long after an obnoxious LARPing fraud comes out onto the scene claiming to be Q, the fake news anti-Q mainstream media inserted a staged request for comment, which the LARPer would agree to, and he'll be used to smear the movement. Joe M. Fucking Joe M. We'll leave Baby Q alone for now, but this will be coming up a little later. On March 20th, a Q follower named Neely Blanchard, who had posted about QAnon on social media several times and attended multiple Trump rallies wearing Q merchandise, was arrested after kidnapping her two daughters, who had been removed from her custody by Child Protective Services after a series of mental health episodes and given to the custody of their grandmother. Blanchard was a self-professed sovereign citizen, which, if you don't know, is a movement of people who believe that there is a loophole in the American legal system where you can read from a series of legally binding contracts and essentially no longer be subject to U.S. law or required to pay taxes. We'll unfortunately return to that later. Also around this time in the beginning of the year, people who were following the movement noticed something very peculiar. QAnon, a conspiracy theory about how American President Donald Trump was fighting to crack down on corruption in the United States government, was spreading across the world. Followers of Q were popping up all over. Canada, the UK, Germany, Japan, France, the Netherlands, Sweden, Australia, New Zealand, and even South Africa, where 4chan and 8chan moderator Paul Ferber, suspected of having some part in creating QAnon, was from. What many had at one point thought of as a fringe group of far-right, middle, and lower-class Americans radicalized by the extreme partisan politics in the country was becoming something much larger, much more global. Can you think of any reason that might become a powder keg in the coming months? Back in January, there had been some reports coming out of Wuhan, China, about an airborne respiratory virus with mysterious origins that was spreading. On January 20th, there was a confirmed case of the virus in the United States. We won't relive this whole story for the sake of the listener because this has just been our whole lives for two years. But needless to say, by late February and early March, COVID-19 was rapidly spreading in the states. Federal and state governments were starting to realize that it was a situation that needed to be addressed. People were starting to get scared. Nationwide lockdowns were being discussed. Celebrities like Tom Hanks were announcing that they contracted the virus, and people were already starting to die. To QAnon followers and conspiracy theorists in general, in the immortal words of Tony Montana in the edited-for-TV version of Scarface, the whole thing was like a chicken just waiting to be plucked. It's a really good one of those in Die Hard with a Vengeance. I don't remember what he what he says in that, though. You be guy, Mr. Falcon. <laughs> yeah. It's, it says that, but also, like, they had this weird, shitty Bruce Willis impersonator. Like, it was somebody that just worked at the TV station who just had a Bruce Willis impression, but it was so terrible. You be guy, Mr. Falcon. 
<laughs> Yippee Kaye, Mr. Falcon. On March 23rd, Q posted a drop insinuating that the COVID-19 pandemic was an intentional deep state plot. The China virus. End POTUS rallies. End POTUS econ gains. End POTUS unemployment gains. End POTUS A, B, C, D, question mark. Delay U.S.-China trade negotiations. Shelter Biden public appearances. Shelter Biden debates. Push new revised 2020 vote by mail. What is the mathematical probability that occurs? The time bomb explodes at the exact point in time that allows for maximum damage prior to the P underscore elect outside of standard deviation. Who benefits the most? Mueller failed. Impeachment failed. Why was it critically important impeachment to be rushed by the House? The coup failed. Occam's razor simply states that of any given set of explanations for an event occurring, the simplest is most likely the correct one. Q. And this is apropos of nothing right now, but I just, I really, I just have to say the whole thing about the Q drops that people, that people say, the Q followers say, is that Q, he doesn't like just tell you straightforward something. He, he doesn't just go out and preach some kind of information or give you some kind of direct thing. He asks questions that get you thinking and they make you start looking into things. But that's not even true. These people don't know what a leading question is. Yeah. I mean, these, these aren't even, these aren't leading questions. They're statements of evidence in supporting a hypothesis. Your rhetorical statements of evidence. Yeah, they're yeah, they're just they're, like the whole premise that he just asks questions that get you thinking is just not true at all. These they don't understand that you can't just write a sentence and then put a question mark on it and say it's a question. Yeah. Newsflash. This is bullshit. <laughs> The message that the growing pandemic was a false flag operation by the deep state began to spread across every social media platform, from Facebook to Twitter to TikTok, to all the right-wing app clones like Gab and Vote. But the message wasn't just spreading within the US. It was resonating on a global level. All across the world, people were buying into the idea that the pandemic wasn't real, that it was either an exaggerated hoax or a real virus spread intentionally by the evil cabal. And because everybody was stuck inside of their houses, their minds had nothing else to do but fixate on these ideas. Let them bounce around in the echo chambers of their social media bubbles and into the vulnerable vacuum of their psyche. People were scared and confused. We'd never experienced anything like this in our lifetime. It didn't feel real. People, even the most economically struggling, had become used to a certain baseline of comfort and freedom in modern life. And being told to not leave our houses, for stores to close down, for daily life to come screeching to a halt, just didn't gel with our expectations. It was hard for many people to wrap their minds around the fact that this was all really happening. It felt like it was something from a movie, and Q always said that we should grab our popcorn and enjoy the movie. It's not likely that the people who created Q, or even whoever was running the movement at that point, had any idea of this when it all started. But QAnon was the perfect container for all of people's collective fear, paranoia, confusion, and anger at the pandemic. It was the greatest way to reject a meaningless and random reality where truly awful things could just happen for no reason whatsoever. It gave shape and form to the invisible boogeyman of the virus and gave a certain portion of the global population hope that things could all just return back to normal if only the superhero Q succeeded in their mission. The QAnon movement might have been on the verge of dying before this. It might have just faded into the background of 2020. But after COVID hit and millions of people needed some way to make sense of it that didn't involve acknowledging the entropy of the universe, 
Not to mention the Trump administration's abject failure of canceling and dismantling the federal pandemic preparedness program. There was no doubt about it. QAnon was here to stay forever. I'm going to call this a little red pill. There's about 25 million people in Australia. There's about 65 million in England. And you got about 365 million in North America if you exclude Central America. Now, I might suck at decimals, but that's around 450 million people. Have you ever heard of the Georgia Guidestones? It's about nine miles north of the city of Elberton, Georgia, USA. It's a set of ten guidelines laid out in eight different languages. Number one, maintain human population under 500 million. Today, March 11, 2020, Trump halted all transport from Europe. What is up guys, Talk here. So let's talk a little bit about the coronavirus. So a bunch of very fast people got on this immediately and started digging to see if they could figure out what the origins of this coronavirus is. And guess what they discovered? They actually found that there are patents held on the coronavirus by a group known as the Purebright Institute. So right away, people start tweeting. They start putting out information all over the internet about who developed this coronavirus. Now, immediately, major news sources like the New York Times, for example, started putting out information that was damage control. And they started saying, oh, they deal with this kind of stuff, and this is not the same virus. This is a different virus. This virus came from bat soup. But regardless of any of that, it sheds light on one thing, and that is genetic manipulation of viruses to make them worse than they actually are. And seated on the board of directors of Peerbright is Bill and Melinda Gates, who have already told us... That on March 30th, a Pew Research Center survey released showing that, of those Americans surveyed, 76% said they had never heard or read anything about QAnon. Only 23% said they had heard or read a lot or a little, and only 3% said that they had heard or read a lot. In fact, breaking it down by political leaning, 28% of Democrats or Democrat leaning said they'd heard a little or a lot about QAnon compared to only 18% of a Republican leaning. Fully liberal Democrats were the most likely group to have heard or read something about QAnon with 39%. The survey also concluded that people's exposure to QAnon was directly tied to the news they consumed. 52% of the people who had heard of QAnon primarily read the New York Times to get their news. 46% of them primarily watched MSNBC. 35% primarily listen to NPR, compared to 17% who watched Fox News, 19% who watched CNN, 13% who watched NBC, 10% who watched CBS, and 7% who watched ABC, which meant that, at this point, awareness of QAnon seemed to be solely predicated on whether or not your chosen news source wanted to cover it. And while highfalutin liberal-leaning sources like the New York Times and NPR were clearly focusing on the movement as a gotcha against conservatives who primarily made up QAnon, Sources like Fox News didn't want anything to do with it because it made them look bad. And then you had normie sources like CBS and ABC who were just like, 
what the fuck is this shit? We're just trying to read the Powerball numbers over here. Also in late March, a New Age spirituality writer named David Wilcock, author of New York Times bestselling books like The Source Field Investigations, The Ascension Mysteries, Revealing the Cosmic Battle Between Good and Evil, and Awakening in the Dream, Contact Within the Divine, decided to hitch his wagon to QAnon, claiming that the deep state cabal and the secret battle against the forces of evil being waged by Trump and Q were one and the same with the things he had been preaching about for years. In a multi-hour livestream to his followers on YouTube, Wilcock claimed that the coronavirus was likely manufactured by the deep state as a form of control, peddled misinformation about infection rates, and claimed that the effects of the virus were lessened through the prayer techniques he described in his books. He also said that there would be a, quote, three days of darkness in which all television, radio, internet, and phone signals would go out of commission and be replaced by a repetitive message from Q and his team requesting the public to stay calm as the string of mass arrests that Q had promised since the beginning of the movement were carried out. Here is a supercut from the live stream put together by the YouTube channel More Worms that you will swear is just a sketch from the Tim and Eric's awesome show. I was driving in a car with Donald Trump. He was the driver. I was in the passenger seat. It was a pickup truck and his eyes go fluttering like this, and his head drops back, and I go, dude, dude, wake up, wake up. The next thing I know, Trump literally drives us off of a cliff, and we're falling through the air in this pickup truck, and I am freaking the F out. Oh, fuck yeah. Why does he stand like that? This is David Wilcock, uh, and wow, what an incredible turn of events we have had. Let me just start with that, and Beth, why don't we go to the close here in the middle? That's that's the green one, you gotta hit the red one. Top button, above that, no. <sighs> why is his house all beige? Why is his house the same as his skin tone? I don't know. This was live streamed on YouTube. ...has this energetic component. Your prayers can make this virus less bad. Imagine the planet surrounded with light, changing the frequencies of this possibly man-made virus. Look at those molecules in your mind. Look at molecules. See the molecules. Look at those little molecules. See them. You are changing those molecules. You are rearranging those molecules. We have the science. I showed you the book where I wrote about it. What are you laughing about? You are looking for porn while I'm doing no, my no, show? No, 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 I'm like deleting so many. Beth, shh. It's, it's distracting, sorry. She showed up at my This house. is amazing. This is like <laughs> fine art. I know. This is amazing. I know, I told you. It's like an absurdist like sketch. That coronavirus 19. And the only thing that happened to me was that I had to sleep for about a month. Thank God it's not that bad. It's only 1% fatality rate at the most. That's my dog. She appears to be choking on a bone fragment. Give her a snack or something. I'm not going to pet her. i got work to do. <laughs> I'm trying to focus on my job, okay? I'm just trying to do the, the show. So... He looks like well, satanic David Hyde Pierce. Yeah, <laughs> he does. So uh, let's, just, let's just try to see if I can get this to happen. Hold on, folks. Beth, if you don't mind, um, if you could load this, the, the pandemic response file onto an SD card and then put it into that computer. What's that? Not that's not an SD card. Okay. Yeah, and just yeah, just take that, take that HDMI cable out. This, this slideshow is going to blow your doors off, so just... Hang in there. It's totally, totally worth it for me to be doing this, believe me. I've been working on this thing 
nonstop for so many hours. There's so much research has gone into this. So, the deep state, the Illuminati, the cabal, the new world order. It's he can't get his slideshow to play, so he's just trying to wing it and save from memory. The Roman Empire, it traces back to, uh, you got it? Did you load the program? I'll just do it here because I know exactly what I need to do. You want to, okay. <laughs> She's tweaking my lights. If you're looking about, Why is like, everything in his place eyes, just like UPS brown? The way my face works, there's this funny bony thing I have right here. If you light it properly, it's not there. That's all it is, okay? <laughs> so stupid. So stupid. Whatever. Okay. Yeah. It's just the way light reflects on my face. <sighs> After having all of these possible ways to try to do this kicked out from under me, uh, we just have to do this without slides. And that's fine, because I remember most of what I was going to say. Torturing people and drinking their blood is an addiction. And it actually gets you high. Really high. L eggs that are laid by a salamander are zapped with a laser that's a green laser. The Wiener laptop and the Huma Abedin and Hillary and Pizzagate and Podesta and satanic pedophiles and the chicken eggs hatched into half-duck, half-chicken hybrid creatures. And I like to think of myself sort of like Neo in the movie The Matrix. Ford Motor Company repaid Hitler and Henry Ford was actually a really creepy Nazi dude that was the uh, Hitler thing that was killing all these people. So like, wait a minute, how's that even possible? More like actually, you're, you're Neo, I'm actually more like Morpheus. I have a little guy, like he's this little, I guess this is a USB stick. Oh my God, it's so bad. Oh my God, we're all gonna die. The world's never gonna be the same. It's all this stuff. I remember being a kid and watching E.T., the movie, and when E.T. appeared to be dead, I cried my eyes out. That's really crazy, right? You get high on alien corpse dust. There's no new cases. No new cases of COVID-19 at all. They haven't said a frickin' word since March the 9th. Not a word. And then when E.T. comes back to life, because Elliot's loving him, oh my God, that resurrection was so amazing and I was just crying and crying and crying. Let's. Let's see if the slides will work. Yeah, that's a great idea. Let's just hold on for one second, everybody. And then what happened was that Hitler... Um, <laughs> Why didn't okay, he... Like Why didn't they just do that before? Pre-planned. Keynote software. Oh, my God. Really? It's not letting me install Keynote because it says I need to have a newer operating system. You want to use my computer? Yes, yes. Because that's not, we don't need that anymore. We just need you to find one of those cards from wherever. doesn't matter. We may be totally doomed here with the slides. I don't know. This is the last thing. If this doesn't work, then we're really just not going to do it. It's one of the top 10 greatest videos I've ever seen. That is, I, I, I yeah, that is surreal. <laughs> how do we like, how do you have an on-ramp for that? <laughs> like you don't. There's, I feel like we could have done a whole episode just about that video. Oh, 100%. And we probably should. We probably should do. Every once in a while in this fucking bleak slog, it's nice to hit a little pocket of, oh, I can enjoy myself 
for a second, and that video was a pure delight. On March 31st, a train engineer named Eduardo Moreno ran a speeding locomotive off the tracks at the port of Los Angeles, California, with the intention of ramming it into the hospital ship Mercy. The ship had been set up there as an overflow for treating the skyrocketing number of COVID patients in the LA area. But of course, since in the Quanon, COVID was all a hoax or some kind of man-made false flag operation, some people within the Q community did not believe that was the real purpose of Mercy. They thought it was secretly a holding cell for deep state prisoners awaiting transport to Gitmo. Or perhaps it was a storage area for trafficked children. I can't stress enough how Q people are never able to actually settle on one concrete explanation for one of their theories, and therefore they end up just oscillating back and forth between multiple of them, even if they contradict each other or seemingly don't make any sense within the context of their overall movement. For instance, why would you want to expose a secret holding unit for the deep state prisoners if you were on the side of the people who had put them there? If Trump and Q were the ones who established mercy as a secret holding cell, wouldn't you be ruining the plans of your own leader by bringing it to light? At any rate, Moreno intended to ram the mercy and expose what was actually happening inside. Crack it open like a big old satanic egg so that people could watch the yolk of corruption leak out onto the concrete below. He brought the train up to speed, broke past a concrete barrier at the end of the track, skidded through a steel barrier and a chain link fence, slid across a parking lot and a gravel field before grinding to a stop about 255 yards short of the mercy. A California Highway Patrol officer who was on the scene apprehended Moreno as he attempted to flee. When arrested, he said, You only get this chance once. The whole world is watching. I had to. People don't know what's going on here. So, depending on which version of the conspiracy theory you believe, Moreno was either trying to completely fuck up a top-secret plan for Trump and Q, or murder hundreds of innocent trafficked children who were inside? The Mercy as Trafficking Dungeon theory was not actually popular within the mainstream Q community, though, and so in the wake of the incident, most Q believers wrote Moreno off as either a jackass who was soling the Q name, or an actual false flag agent intentionally trying to sabotage the movement. I'm going to try out this whole blaming it on a false flag operation every time I do something wrong thing. I feel like QAnon is kind of on to something here. Remember when I pronounced it Edinburgh? False flag. False flag. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a false flag mispronunciation. During police interrogation, Moreno said he knew the incident would bring media attention and it would expose what was really going on there to the world, which is an obvious retcon excuse for failing in his bumbling mission to ram the ship. Kind of like how Richard McCaslin claimed that he only stormed the Bohemian Grove to bring media attention to it with a spectacle after gloriously failing to do what he was actually there to do, kill a bunch of deep state Satanists and free a bunch of slave children that didn't exist. On April 1st, Alex Jones announced on an episode of InfoWars that he was going to reveal who the real people behind Q were. This is what he said. I don't know who started Q. Should I just tell all the Q heads? It's all about fantasy land. And this is going to happen and it's exciting and you wait and then it doesn't happen 99% of the time. It's because it was set up to create a fight club deal and to see if they get people excited and, 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 and to be able to put articles out that Hillary's going down for Satanism, which is true, and Trump is trying, and, and, and there are good people in the government that are going after him, and that's all really happened, so that now even the co-founder of Wikipedia has come out and said, you know, ritual sex slavery is real, it's all going to come out. So there was a healthiness to it, but it got hijacked by the very people that created it and has now become a thing that gets people to not take action because you're supposed to just not do anything. But it's not Dungeons and Dragons and, and live action role play for everybody. And the people that created it are big Star Wars fans and live action role play. And they're real people, but they just know everybody works. You know what? I'll just expose it. Okay, I, like I gave Joe Rogan a deadline. And I love Joe. He's a good guy. I, I like these guys too. I, I, I give them till next Tuesday 
to come out with it all, or I'm going to expose it next Wednesday. There. Seven days. There you go. And get all the documents. Let's start firing it up. Get it ready. Okay? Just watch. Okay? There's something real for you, folks. That's not talk. This is the real world right here. This is not fantasy land. And I risk my life doing this. This isn't breadcrumbs and horse shit. That guy, who is he talking to off camera? There's, he's pretending like this moment, like this is a natural moment of just, let's, uh, let's get these documents fired up. Let's just do this. Ah, okay. Yeah. And then that was, a, that was like a cut down of some of the highlights of the episode, but 30 minutes, a 30 minute episode of InfoWars where he just says nothing. He just keeps saying that. And like the April Fool's joke I should have seen coming, I watched the entire episode so you don't have to, and he never reveals the supposed identities of Q. It's just 30 minutes of waffling and meandering and talking about what a badass he is and how stupid QAnon followers are, and starting to tease that he's going to reveal Q's identity every five minutes, only to not. And it all leads to this. Like, all right, I'm waiting, waiting for him to reveal Q. Can't wait for him to do it. He keeps saying every five minutes he's going to do it. I'm gonna, it must be at the very end. Everything we sell is stocked and ready to ship to you. We're about a day behind. So you order today, it will be shipping to you on Friday. So InfoWarsStore.com, get the boost you and your family need with Living Defense now back in stock, sold out for four months, and the Krill Oil now back in stock, and the X2 and the X3, and the Super Silver toothpaste is sold out. Super Blue has the same amount of nano silver in it. Just, that's it? He just rambles about supplements for five minutes? It just all leads. I watched the whole thing being like, he keeps saying that he's going to reveal them. He keeps saying that he's going to reveal it like on another episode, but then he'll be like, never mind, I'm going to say it now. And then he'll rant for five more minutes about QAnon. And then he's like, I think I'm going to definitely say it in this episode. And then he rants for five more minutes. And then it just ends and then goes to five minute commercial for supplements. In the episode, he eventually says that he's going to give the people behind Q three days to come forward or he'll expose them to the world. He never did. And then something happened. Of all the ridiculous moments, claims and events in the history of QAnon, whether or not they originated from Q themselves or just the followers, in my opinion, you can point to this one moment as the exact point where the QAnon movement, i.e. the followers and the general ideology, broke away from QAnon the figure, i.e. the person or people posting as Q and generally leading the movement. This claim was more absurd than anything ever imagined by Q or the followers up to this point. It was far out of the bounds of the type of thing that Q would ever say, and Q proper had absolutely nothing to do with it. They had gone dark for this entire week and never referenced it. In fact, as you may have noticed, we have referenced back to Q-Drops less and less throughout the duration of the episodes as Q becomes increasingly irrelevant to what the movement is. But let's get back to the matter at hand. I'm talking about the New York Mole Children. Yeah! That's a good name. That's a good name. On April 2nd, a self-proclaimed independent journalist with a supposed insider informant within the White House, who described himself as, quote, one man away from President Trump and saying he was part of the, quote, Pentagon Pedophile Task Force, Timothy Charles Homeseth made a blog post on his website, timothycharlesholmseth.com, making the claim that the U.S. military had just rescued 35,000 malnourished, caged, and tortured children from tunnels beneath New York City's Central Park and other key locations in the country. The post claimed that the military were pulling out hundreds of children, pregnant preteens, deformed babies, corpses that had been harvested for organs, and kids who had been crossbred with animals to create Island of Dr. Moreau-esque monstrosities who only knew darkness, abuse, and pain, which would all be incredibly disturbing, sad, and horrifying if it were true. 
Instead, it's disturbing for an entirely different reason. For instance, as we've discussed in previous episodes, what kind of sick freak makes this kind of shit up? The story was taken and turned into an article on a conspiracy theory website called BeforeIt'sNews.com and quickly shared out onto social media platforms like Facebook, Pinterest, and Twitter, where most people only saw the thumbnail and title of the article. Over 35,000 malnourished caged children rescued out of U.S. tunnels by military. Before sharing it with their network, the story had passed through three layers of context laundering before making it to the greater public claimed by some random guy with absolutely zero proof whatsoever, and then taken and published as an article on a website that looks like a legit news source, if you don't know anything about the internet and how news organizations work, and then presented to most people as just a simple headline that doesn't sound implausible if you don't think about it for too long, and are already primed to have emotional reactions to things like child trafficking, and fact-checking things doesn't come as second nature to you. The story was quickly incorporated into the Quanon. In reality, none of this had actually happened. The Pentagon released a statement saying that the quote-unquote Pentagon Pedophile Task Force did not exist. We have never heard of an allegation about an underground child abduction ring nor a Pentagon Pedophile Task Force. The only child rescue service that we are aware of is the Human Exploitation Rescue Operative, HERO, Child Rescue Corps, which is a program developed by the U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, ICE, Homeland Security Investigation, HSI, and the Department of Defense's U.S. Special Operations Command, USSOCOM, in conjunction with the National Association to Protect Children. There was no photographic evidence of any of the claims given by Holmseth in his original post. But what's more, Holmseth was apparently a violent maniac with a history of spreading false claims and harassing people who were involved in missing children's cases. Mark Kloss, an advocate for missing children and father of a young girl who was abducted and murdered, Polly Kloss, spoke out publicly about Holmseth shortly after his claim went viral. As soon as I saw the name Timothy Holmseth, it set off a trigger because in the past, he has accused me of covering up for Polly's murder. According to my contacts at Web Sleuths and Levi Page, Holmseth, the leader of the Pentagon Pedophile Task Force, is currently a wanted man who has repeatedly violated a restraining order against a Florida lawyer, Kim Picazio. In 2009, Picazio represented the mother of a missing child, Hale Cummings. Holmseth accused Picazio of helping to murder the girl, and ultimately Picazio took out a restraining order against him. In fact, Holmseth was wanted by the police in connection with violating the restraining order and on the run from authorities. But you might say to yourself, of course the Pentagon denies the existence of the Pedophile Task Force. Of course the law is after Holmseth and all these people are taking out restraining orders against him. The Pentagon is covering up the existence of the secret operation, and the law is trying to take Holmseth down for speaking the truth. The question I'd ask in return is, why? Just why would the Pentagon cover up this operation to free thousands of children? Why wouldn't they want anybody to know about this incredibly great thing they were doing? What is the reason for that other than making it convenient to be able to claim that this massive operation was happening with absolutely zero proof? Also, how? An operation of this magnitude being kept secret would require the participation of literally thousands of people. Not a single person within the operation decided to leak the info. Nobody got a hold of some pictures or body cam footage. Nobody witnessed any of the children being recovered in the middle of Central Park and snapped a photo. Not a single person found out about this other than some random guy on the internet with a string of incidents where he falsely accused people of kidnapping and hurting children on his record. It's also worth noting that there is a law in place disallowing a military organization like the 
the Pentagon from handling a non-military crime called the Posse Comitatus Rule, signed in June 18th of 1878 by President Rutherford B. Hayes, which limits the powers of the federal government in the use of federal military personnel to enforce domestic policies within the United States. If there was an operation to rescue hundreds of children from underground tunnels, it would have been handled by the FBI or state police. Fucking mole children, man. Mole children. Old, dirty, roughy, beefy, hazy. Yep, he, he did good. You don't often hear about the, the deeds of Rutherford B. Hayes, but uh, he's out there. Rutherford B. All right. On April 3rd, Alex Jones uploaded a new video to social media. Considering that it was Wednesday, the day he claimed he would be outing the true identity of QAnon, many were expecting it to be that. Instead, his video was a ranting missive claiming that, amongst other things, QAnon was a dangerous terrorist organization. But now shadowy groups who won't expose themselves on message boards tell you what to do and they continue to direct you innocent people who believe they're working for the president to commit incredible crimes like ramming a train over the rails and trying to attack a ship because they believe... The global elites are trying to board that ship, and then when George Soros and Hillary Clinton and the Lord Rothschild and all the New World Order are all safe in their castles. This was the final straw for the Q community. Alex Jones became a full-fledged enemy to the movement. Many dug up an old recording from the late 90s in which Bill Cooper, another conspiracy theorist and radio broadcaster who wrote the seminal conspiracy book Behold the Pale Horse, and was shot dead by authorities in Eager, Arizona in 2001 during an attempt to arrest him for assault charges after years of evading an arrest warrant for tax evasion, denounced Alex Jones as a liar and controlled opposition. Before we get started, I have to clear up a little, little discrepancy here. Apparently the other night, or within the last week, because I've been getting a lot of email about this, and I even received one telephone call. Apparently somebody called the Alex Jones broadcast and asked them, asked him why he didn't have me on the air or asked him something about me. <coughs> Alex Jones said he had had me on the air once before, several years ago, and had to cut me off the air because of the foul language that I used. So on the air tonight, I'm going to tell you, Alex Jones, you are a bold-faced, miserable, stinking, little coward liar. Now let me say that again so there's no mistake about it. You can all tell Alex Jones that I said this, and I suspect he's listening because he does. Alex Jones, you are a bold-faced, stinking, rotten, little coward liar. I was only on the Alex Jones show one time was years ago when I didn't know who he was. And he basically just rants about Alex Jones for a while. And at a certain point, he says that he's like low key, like a psyop. And though Cooper was technically right about nearly everything he said, he was also a complete fraud and was only saying any of this stuff because Jones criticized him. The Q followers were latching onto the conspiracy theory equivalent of a rap diss track and taking the word of one bullshit artist that another bullshit artist was a bullshit artist because he accused their preferred bullshit artist of being a bullshit artist. The whole thing is incredibly silly. Just incredibly silly. Here's our boy Joe M. laying down the final word on Jones. Breaking. As the storm shifts into high gear, deep state-controlled opposition Pied Piper Alex Jones has gone all in on the fake news claim that Q is inciting violence and that its followers were behind the train attack on the Mercy Hospital ship. Enemy of the people. Remember Baby Q? 
aka Austin Steinbart, the guy who claimed he was working for the DIA since he was 17 and was part of a secret government operation called Project QAnon, where he was communicating with himself from the future, who was the real Q, working to take down the deep state with future knowledge. The guy who showed himself hacking into the private medical files of NFL celebrities like Terry Bradshaw in a Los Angeles medical facility in order to prove that he was working for QAnon because if he wasn't working for the highest levels of government, surely he'd be arrested for uploading a video of himself illegally stealing the private medical files of other patients at a medical facility? He got arrested by the FBI for uploading a video of himself illegally stealing the private medical files of other patients at a medical facility. That was an actual medical facility? It wasn't just his house? It was a real place, and those were real files. Those those were the real brain scan files of Terry Bradshaw. Wow, I am shocked. I just assumed that shit was like completely fake because that doesn't look like a medical office at all. It looks like his hallway. On April 7th, he was formally charged with extortion. In reality, Steinbart apparently had a history of mental health issues. In fact, the reason why he was even at the brain scan facility where he posted the video of the quote-unquote hacked medical files was because his parents had ordered him to go there and get a brain scan after a series of concerning mental episodes that scared them. His alleged hacking of the files was also nothing more than digging around on a computer he had access to in the facility and discovering the poorly secured medical file folder. Shortly after posting that video in mid-March, the FBI visited Steinbart's Arizona home where he was living with several people who had become followers of his on the internet. He admitted to uploading the video and claimed that he had only done it to prove to people online that he was a spy who wouldn't get arrested for hacking. For the time being, they left him alone. However, a few days later, on March 31st, he posted a video asking his followers to harass a company called Dato, claiming that they were part of a deep state conspiracy. But in reality, they had just taken down some of his files for copyright reasons and he was getting revenge. The Q followers overwhelmed Dato's customer service system and they eventually had to spend $11,000 on an entirely new line in order to escape the attack. Steinbart also personally sent threatening messages to the company's CEO. I'm shocked that this guy is any sort of capable of anything. I'm also like, who were those people staying with him? Was Satanist Doug having three ways with his like would-be cult members? I mean, you've like, got to- What's you, going you, on? You've got to assume something like that was going on. I want release the fucking Austin Steinbart memo. I need to know all those details. I want a new steel dossier. I want the steel dossier 2.0, the Steinbart work of art, man. Take me to there. I agree. I agree. I dug around a lot on this story and those details are not given. There's no reporting on like who the people were that were living with him, whether or not he actually did have a smoking hot wife. There's just there's gaps in the reporting that are I would really be curious to find out. I need to know everything about Baby Q immediately. Oh, there's a, there's a quote. I am running a military intelligence operation for the Defense Intelligence Agency called Operation QAnon. There is a very good chance I will send some psychos to come see you in person. The Q influencers who had previously criticized Steinbart celebrated the arrest on Twitter. Steinbart was quickly released on bail and was able to stay out of jail until his trial later in the year. He was also allowed to continue using the internet and stay living in his house with several of his internet followers. There was even a film crew that began living in the house making a documentary about him. However, in September of 2020, Steinbart was caught attempting to flout a court-mandated drug test by sneaking a, quote, whizinator, a penis-shaped device used for smuggling clean urine into a testing facility and he was arrested again. His followers quickly became disillusioned with him and left the house, and the film crew indefinitely shelved their documentary about him. 
Later on, in August of 2021, after 225 days in prison, Steinbart was sentenced to time served by a judge and released from jail. What? Keep this motherfucker behind bars? What is going on? Yeah, this, uh, to be fair, some of these people we've covered that have committed these crimes throughout the last several years, like they genuinely did get like pretty harsh prison sentences for the things that they did. So thankfully, but uh, but yeah. Guys, come on now. He's not a time traveling fucking, he needs to. You really think that there would be a harsher sentence for cyber fraud or whatever the fuck hacking into a bunch of people's files and showing them on the internet is. On April 8th, Media Matters discovered that Q influencer Dustin Nemos, who was mentioned in the previous episode, feuding with Joe M over producing an audiobook version of their co-authored QAnon book, QAnon, An Invitation to the Great Awakening, was hawking colloidal silver on his e-commerce website as a cure for COVID-19. Colloidal silver is tiny silver particles in liquid and has been presented by many internet wellness grifters as a health supplement. Though there are absolutely no proven health benefits of the substance, and in fact, it can be dangerous to consume. Here's the product description for Dustin Nemo's colloidal silver on his website, which he was selling for $22.49 for one fluid ounce and $33.95 for four fluid ounces. There are several medical and health-related issues for silver. Learn more at www.redpillliving.com silver. In the medical industry, it is used in wound dressing, creams, and as an antibiotic coating on medical devices. Colloidal silver can be very supportive against ear and eye infections, skin conditions such as eczema, cirrhosis, ringworm, and tissue damage from burns, the common cold and flu, viral infection treatment, boost cell recovery, increase healing, and decrease swelling, respiratory support against bronchitis and pneumonia. Novel, allegedly intentional bioweapon, coronavirus. After discovering this, Media Matters reached out to Shopify, the e-commerce platform that Nemos was using to sell the product, and they promptly took the store down. However, in early May, the store was back up with a different e-commerce company, with reference to the colloidal silver being a coronavirus cure, removed from the product description. Also on April 8th, Joe M, aka The Storm Is Upon Us, on Twitter posted this. And there you have it. COVID-19 was a deep state engineered biological attack to thwart the 2020 election. Patriots, you're in control, and the people know you are not going to let them get away with this. Fire at will. Because of the seeming incitement of violence with the phrase fire at will, his Twitter account was permanently suspended. R.I.P. Joe M., you piece of absolute shit. <laughs> we will miss you, except we won't, because fuck you, you fucking piece of shit. In mid-April, the first true documentary in the Age of Q was released, Out of Shadows. Up until now, there had been countless ranting YouTube videos scattered across the internet, and even Joe M's short and focused pitch videos. But Q had evolved over the years and had graduated into a movement deserving of its own feature-length event. And here it was. The, quote, documentary was written and directed by former Hollywood stuntman Mike Smith, and among many other things claims that, of course, Hollywood is run by the evil satanic pedophile cabal, there are satanic symbols hidden in music videos by popular artists like Katy Perry and Lady Gaga, and that there are even hidden symbols directly in some of the words used in the Hollywood vernacular. For instance, the word television secretly means tell a vision, tell somebody a vision. Channel refers to psychically channeling a spirit. And the name Hollywood itself is referring to the holly plant, a poisonous plant used in druidic rituals. This is the trailer for Out of Shadows. It gives a general sense of what this is. What's happening out there, Donnie? I don't know. It doesn't look good. Gear up, guys. 
Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2? Oh, wait. <laughs> no, that's not right. From Out of the Shadows from 2016? That's not right. That's the trailer for 2016 film Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Out of the Shadows, a surprisingly okay sequel to one of the worst reboots of all time. Ah, here it is. <laughs> so forget what I said. This is the actual trailer for Out of Shadows. I've probably had one of the coolest jobs in the world. U.S. intelligence was was using motion pictures uh, to alter the thinking of, of Americans in the United States. There's a very small group of people that influence all the companies that we watch. Just disconnect for five minutes figure out what if I've been lied to what if I thought that was a really weird season finale to the Marvel What If show. So obviously Smith is detailing real experiences and things he witnessed while working in Hollywood for years. He saw these satanic practices going on, finally had enough of it, and made this movie based on the evidence he had seen. Nope. In 2014, Smith suffered an onset injury that left him temporarily paralyzed from the waist down. During his recovery, he started working with a physical therapist who was deeply religious and started preaching to him about how Hollywood was controlled by baby-eating Satanists. Through some of the weirdest reverse Florence Nightingale effect of all time, Smith actually bought into this stuff, became radicalized, and set about to make Out of the Shadows, a documentary about stuff he had heard from his physical therapist about an industry he had worked in for decades and never personally witnessed. I'm just going to say this. I didn't find God because I went to church. I found God because I realized that the Luciferian and the other side, the occult world, was real, and that I had been fooled for all these years. In the movie, he only gives vague allusions to having seen quote-unquote weird artwork and statues that seemed to be similar to occult imagery he'd read about. The documentary quickly became popular and spread throughout social media. Watchdog groups attempted to reach out to YouTube to have it taken down, but at the time they refused, citing that it didn't violate any of their policies. The main source of information for the documentary is a former CIA agent named Kevin Shipp, who left the agency in 2011 after suing them for mold contamination in his work-supplied housing. After leaving the CIA, he dedicated himself to becoming a supposed public whistleblower on such conspiratorial issues as the link between vaccines and autism, a theory abandoned by even anti-vaxxers at this point, the evils of GMOs, and how 9-11 was a false flag operation. The documentary contains countless bizarre, contradictive, or ironic moments. For instance, it claims that the existence of the Motion Picture Alliance for the Preservation of Ideals in the 1950s is proof of a wide-scale censorship campaign by the deep state, despite the fact that the 1950s-era film censorship was actually spearheaded by conservative politicians attempting to cast out communists in the entertainment industry, a practice that would certainly be favored by the filmmaker considering the fact that communism is quinonically an evil scourge attempting to rot the United States from within. Also, in one of its most absurd and unbelievable claims, the documentary says that a scene in the 2001 film Zoolander is proof of government mind control. In a movie like Zoolander, when they're showing you that they're controlling Derek Zoolander's mind through mind control, you realize that they're trying to desensitize you and make you think that what you're watching is fiction because it's in a comedy. 
The most ironic part of all, Donald Trump has a cameo in Zoolander. And in perhaps the greatest example of you literally could not make this shit up if you tried that's ever been historically recorded, the documentary plays a video montage of dozens of news anchors from local news stations across the country all speaking in unison, reading from the exact same script verbatim. I am Fox San Antonio's Jessica Headley. And I'm Ryan Wolf. Our, our greatest, greatest responsibility, responsibility is, is to, to serve our, our Treasure Valley communities. The El Paso Las Cruces communities. Eastern Iowa communities. Mid-Michigan communities. We are extremely proud of the quality, balanced journalism that CBS4 News produces. But we are concerned about trouble and trying to be responsible. One-sided news stories plaguing our country. Plaguing our country. The sharing of biased and false news has become all too common on social media. Alarming, some media outlets publish these same fake stories without checking facts first. The sharing of biased and false, false news has, has become, become all too common on, on social, social media. media. More alarming, some media this is extremely dangerous to our democracy. This is extremely dangerous to our democracy. This is extremely dangerous to our democracy. This is extremely dangerous. You might have seen that video. It's been passed around a lot. It, you, you'll see somebody sharing that video on Facebook and it's like proof that the fucking shit is happening. Whatever shit I'm talking about, it's proof of it. The documentary takes the fact that the message being spoken by the news anchors is warning against false stories being spread on the internet and presents it as proof of the quote-unquote Operation Mockingbird, the secret deep state program to control the media and send out approved government propaganda to the masses. The cabal doesn't want you to know the truth, and so they've launched a fake news media campaign to paint these real stories being shared on social media as false. However, the video played in the documentary had been stolen from a Deadspin article by Timothy Burke, published in March of 2018, titled How America's Largest Local TV Owner Turned Its News Anchors into Soldiers in Trump's War on the Media. The story was about how Sinclair Broadcast Group, a notoriously conservative-leaning broadcast company that owns almost 200 television stations across the United States, had openly been using their network of local stations to spread pro-Trump propaganda, and had recently forced all of their anchors to record a promo warning against believing false stories using the exact same script. The false stories they were referring to were the supposed fake news criticisms of Trump. Out of the Shadows was correct in that this video montage was an example of corruption in the media and a blatant attempt to spread propaganda in order to brainwash the masses. They just had it completely flipped. The propaganda was in their favor. Yet another example of three times removed context laundering. The video is ripped from the context of the article and posted on YouTube by itself, perhaps by a more apolitical Republicans, Democrats, it's all the same man type person, or perhaps by a Q follower who just didn't fully understand the story. It was seen outside of the article by more Q followers who then took it and memed it with the brand new narrative. This is the deep state trying to brainwash us into not believing the truth attached. And then Mike Smith saw the video and included it in his documentary with the completely opposite meaning ascribed to it. And what's worse, the documentary was almost somehow more bullshit. Court documents show a federal lawsuit between Smith and a notorious Hollywood conspiracy theorist, Tiffany Fitzhenry, who had originally been his partner on Out of the Shadows, but they eventually parted ways and Fitzhenry was cut out of the production after Smith and his crew grew increasingly concerned that some of the claims she wanted to include in the film, quote, had factual gaps. The stuff she wanted to put in the movies was too unverified for the people who released a documentary that claimed that the movie Zoolander was a secret government psyop to normalize mind control. Humanity was a mistake. No, that's ecofascism. I can't give it an impulse. 
How about fuck everyone involved in this? I hope the rest of their lives are a struggle. Yeah. And to be clear, as stated in previous episodes, there are legitimate claims of pedophilia within the Hollywood system, and the government has utilized pop culture to spread propaganda. Out of the Shadows mentions none of these, and instead focuses on how Katy Perry's music video for Dark Horse has secret hypnotic satanic codes embedded in it. Which honestly, I wish it did. That sounds fucking awesome. On April 20th, a post was dropped on GitHub titled Q Behind QAnon, The Uncomfortable Evidence from an anonymous user going by C4A03D70. The user, seemingly very knowledgeable about cybersecurity, had some pretty compelling arguments for how Q is most likely fake from a more technical perspective. When Q posts a message, he types in his password. The message board software 4chan 8kun converts his password to certain seemingly random characters. Those characters are Q's trip code, but trip codes are insecure. They've been cracked many times. These aren't cracked by the boundless resources of the deep state. These were cracked with off-the-shelf software and hardware that any normal citizen could operate. There are articles as old as 1997 that expose the insecurities of the DES Crypt 3 algorithm used by the message boards. HTT slash personal.stevens.edu slash and a giant URL. Note, Longer passwords can be ignored since Crypt3 will discard all but the first eight characters of a password. So even if Q used more secure, longer passwords, only the first eight characters get checked. Did he know this? If not, he must not care very much about personal security. If he did know it, then why were his confirmed leaked passwords longer than eight characters? Like this one, Q hasn't said who he is but his message is that he is intelligent when it comes to security and that people in power are trying to discredit or quiet him. Choosing insecure message board trip codes as a form of verification is contrary to that message. Surely someone like Q would know this type of trip code is insecure. Surely Q would use a secure and platform agnostic method of verification like PGP. With PGP signing, Q could prove his identity on any platform. Even if 4chan, 8chan, or 8kun got shut down, Q's messages and identity could still be verified. By choosing to use a trip code, Q has restricted his verification to a particular message board. Why does Q use insecure identity verification? It contradicts his own message. Q has chosen a form of communication, 4chan, 8kun, that is insecure and beholden to U.S. law. If Q is in a fight against the Hollywood deep state CIA FBI, why would he choose to restrict his message to a site that conforms to their laws? Since there is a simple and platform agnostic option available, PGP, why would he choose insecure and restrictive HN trip codes and no outside comms. Around this time in April, QAnon conspiracy theories linking billionaire Microsoft founder Bill Gates to both the deep state cabal and the coronavirus outbreak were starting to surge. Gates had been subject of conspiracy theories for years due to his involvement with bringing vaccines to developing nations, but the explosion of COVID-19 really brought his role in the cabal into sharp focus. Theories about his hidden crimes involved the idea that he had patented the coronavirus and intentionally worked with a lab in Wuhan to spread it globally so that he could force everybody to get vaccinated with his 
microchip-laced concoction, that a tainted polio vaccine he helped distribute had killed half a million kids in India, and that he was a devout eugenicist bent on triggering some kind of mass genocide to dramatically reduce Earth's population. There is no evidence that any of this is true. The eugenics theory was based on a 2010 TED Talk Gates gave, where he expressed interest in reducing the Earth's population by 10 to 15 percent. But in the talk, he's referring to the fact that helping to distribute vaccines in developing nations will reduce the number of infant fatalities, which is statistically linked with families having more kids. In Gates' theory, helping to vaccinate people in third world countries will decrease their likelihood of having more than one child, which will reduce the Earth's population over time. Now, there are some shady details surrounding Gates, whether it's the theory we just covered that admittedly still does sound a little eugenicsy, to the fact that he, like many mega-rich philanthropists, experiments with his funding of medical technology in developing countries under the auspices of trying to help less fortunate people, but in reality because there's less regulation in those countries and they're essentially treated like low-cost testing grounds for the pet projects of the super-wealthy, to the fact that he maintained a working relationship with Jeffrey Epstein after he was convicted and spent time in jail for corruption of a minor in 2008. There's some weird, possibly negative stuff that's come along with all of the help he's given to the field of vaccine development and third world philanthropy. But these specific claims of Q just have no real evidence. On April 29th, another Q documentary was released, this time a 10-part series created by Dutch author Jeanette Ossenbard called Fall of the Cabal, or sometimes referred to as Fall of Cabal. And honestly, the series was a step back in the realm of Q media. The information it laid out was more tired explainer of the basics of QAnon conspiracy meant to help indoctrinate and red pill normies, which had been done a million times before. It wasn't polished, slick, or tight like Joe M's videos, and it didn't have the big budget we spent money on this feel of out of the shadows. It was just a crappy PowerPoint presentation on QAnon. Here's some of the first part. We are about to witness one of the greatest events in human history. The world as we know it is crumbling before our very eyes, and the majority of the world population is not aware of it. Power structures that have been in place for thousands of years are taken down as we speak. Soon we'll be shown evidence of an elite plan so evil so all-encompassing that people will be shocked to the core. This documentary was made to help you deal with what's coming. Is it a good thing? Oh yes, it's the best thing that could possibly happen to us. But in order to understand and process the quantum leap that we as humanity are about to take, you must understand the reality, the timeline if you wish, that we as a species were placed in. And believe me, you don't have a clue just yet. The evil I mentioned has been working behind the scenes so intelligently, so brilliantly, that hardly anyone ever This is the same old shit. Same old yeah, that, that was that was just like a fucking like slideshow. That was like an iMovie. Where's Joe M? Where is Joe M? Joe M, where are your masterpieces? I'll include a beat-by-beat -beat debunking of all the claims in this, as well as Out of Shadows by Poker and Politics in the show notes, as there's no time to do that in this episode. Thank God. However, for whatever reason, Follow the Cabal really took off during this pandemic and eclipsed any video that Joe M or any of the other Q influencers ever put out. What? No! Yeah, dethroned him. I'm so sad about that. No! Joe M! You were there, but you were too soon. You built the foundation so that the fall of the cabal could fly. Ahead of your time. 
becoming the main piece of propaganda ripping through social media, mass radicalizing people to believe in the QAnon conspiracy. It was particularly part five of the series, the video focused on the details of the supposed child trafficking ring and what was done to the kids that went mega viral. And of these people introduced to the movement through Follow the Cabal and radicalized in a short amount of time, in particular there was Jessica Prim, an Illinois dancer who traveled to New York City on April 30th, drove out to a city pier and live-streamed herself to people on her social media channels as she ranted about QAnon conspiracy theories. She had driven from Illinois to New York City, a 13-hour drive, after watching Follow the Cabal and becoming an ardent Q believer. Remember, this was April 30th, and Follow the Cabal had only been released on April 29th. The reason she had driven to New York City was because, similar to the Mercy Hospital ship in Los Angeles that Eduardo Moreno believed to be a secret deep state asset, some QAnon followers thought that the U.S. Navy hospital ship Comfort, docked in New York City, was actually being used to house the recovered mole children from the underground tunnels in Central Park, and not to treat runoff COVID victims. She had driven all the way out there to expose the truth about what the underground cabal was doing after having watched part five of follow the cabal i'm so scared i'm I'm like right by hell's kitchen i'm like right by hell's kitchen you guys so i'm terrified that they're gonna hurt me i need help i think i have i think i'm the coronavirus i'm scared too i don't want you to hurt me Nobody's gonna hurt you, Please. We're gonna try to get you the help you need, okay? If I need to turn off your car. Can I keep my phone with me? Yeah, you gotta be I was watching um, the, the press conferences with Donald Trump on TV, okay. okay? I felt like he was talking to me, okay? okay. I'm so scared. I understand. You need to turn off your car, <laughs> I'm at the comfort, you guys. I'm just gonna place you in handcuffs, all right? You're not under arrest. You're detained at the moment for your safety and ours, okay? You're putting me in handcuffs. Man, that is so depressing. That is really sad. That's sad in a very different way than that's a new flavor of fuck, man. People need help. Like that is really. She's deep, obviously deeply mentally ill and going through some kind of extreme episode. It's much darker than your typical like QAnon follower just ranting about bullshit because she's clearly going through some a mental health crisis for sure. In reality, Prim had not driven to the Comfort. She had driven to the USS Intrepid, a former aircraft carrier that had been permanently docked and turned into a museum. During her live stream, she claimed that Donald Trump was speaking directly to her during his various press conferences and at one point says, I think I'm the coronavirus, though it's not clear if she is genuinely saying she thinks she is the coronavirus or if she just misspoke in the moment and meant she thinks she has the coronavirus. She was arrested by NYPD officers who responded to her unusual behavior on the pier and was taken into custody. Shortly before her arrest, she made posts on social media calling for Hillary Clinton, John Podesta, and Joe Biden to be killed. The police found 18 knives and other weapons in her car. This woman was clearly very deeply mentally troubled. She was charged with several counts of criminal possession of weapons, but perhaps the best strategy would have been to do a psychiatric evaluation and get her some kind of help. This is, we're getting, we're going to go deep on this one, going deep on this one. On May 4th, Plandemic was released. Another documentary, this time produced by someone named Mickey Willis, predominantly featuring claims and supposed research by disgraced medical researcher turned anti-vax activist Judy Mikovits. 
Plandemic was not actually Q-related, and almost didn't make the cut into this episode based on our established rule of only covering things where Q or one of its various aliases was directly mentioned, or it was very clear that the event was dog-whistling Q. Plandemic was more of a normie conspiracy theory doc claiming that much of the COVID-19 pandemic was an exaggerated hoax meant to control the world population through fear, putting forth scientific claims by Mikevitz as proof. It didn't involve any theories about a satanic cabal, pedophile rings, or a secret government operation to take down the deep state. However, it went mega viral and was quickly embraced primarily by the Q community, to the point where it basically informed the QAnon handbook on how to interpret the pandemic from that moment forward in a rare example of something from outside of the QAnon conspiracy theory having an influence on and affecting the movement itself. Here's a list of the main claims made in Plandemic. In the 1980s, Dr. Anthony Fauci had recently become the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, and Robert Redfield, who is now the head of the CDC, along with a group of other researchers, had patented interleukin-2 therapy and pushed it as an effective treatment for HIV, despite the fact that it didn't work in order to profit from the AIDS epidemic, ultimately killing millions of people to make money. In reality, there was a scandal surrounding people profiting off of the clinical trials of IL-2. In a 2005 article published in the British Medical Journal, it was reported that subjects of the IL-2 clinical trial weren't made aware that the U.S. National Institute of Health had made $8.9 million in patent royalties. However, it was the institute that patented IL-2, but included the name of the inventors of the treatment, including Dr. Anthony Fauci and his deputy, Dr. Clifford Lane, on the patent as is required by law. The two doctors did receive payment from use of the treatment, but as of this 2005 article, they'd only received about $45,000 from the patent since 1997, meaning they were roughly receiving about $5,600 in royalties from the treatment per year. The assertion here being that these doctors pushed a false treatment and killed millions of people in order to receive a couple months rent each year. What's more, in this article that was, once again, published in 2005, Fauci was quoted as saying that he felt it was inappropriate for a doctor to receive payment for a medical treatment, only had his name on the patent because it was legally required, and donated all of his royalties to charity. And just to establish that we aren't trying to depict Fauci as some kind of selfless humanitarian angel, I'm sure that he only did it for optics reasons, knowing that it wouldn't look good for him to be profiting from the treatment even if it was minimal. That doesn't change the fact that accusing him of pushing a false treatment that caused a small genocide for five grand a year is absurd. The Bay Dole Act, a law passed in the 1980s that allowed the government researchers to patent their taxpayer-funded discoveries and personally profit from them, has brought private interest into scientific research and completely destroyed scientific and medical advancement. And, since the government isn't making money from the patents, taxpayers aren't being repaid. This one seems like a little bit of a mixed bag to me. I can see how the idea of scientists being able to personally profit off of their discoveries is problematic and can actually lead to the corruption and stagnation that she's talking about. It makes sense to me. However, the situation is way more complicated than she's making it out to be. Before the Bayh-Dole Act, the government would fund research by institutions and then own the patent on any discovery they made. However, because of the bureaucratic gridlock and inefficiency of the U.S. government, once the research was done and the patent was collected, these discoveries would just sit on a shelf indefinitely. The government wasn't doing anything with the research, and so the discoveries were not being implemented and no money was being made for the taxpayers. It was because of this that the Bayh-Dole Act was unanimously passed with support from both Democrat and Republican lawmakers, who saw it as a way to solve the problem of scientific discoveries disappearing into the ether of government inefficiency. Under this new act, the Research Institute would be able to patent their government-funded discovery. Because of their financial stake in the discovery, the Institute is motivated to license out the discovery to drug and medical companies, who invest in the discovery because of 
of their financial stake. And through this mutual private interest, the discovery is actually utilized and implemented to make society better. And in addition, because these discoveries are being commodified into products, the Buy-Dole Act has put a trillion dollars into our economy since it passed, making back much more money for the taxpayers indirectly than the original system ever did. And in the event that the act creates a situation where a pharmaceutical company licenses out a government-funded discovery from a private institution, creates a drug treatment from it, and engages in something like price gouging, there's a clause in the act that allows the government to step in and reclaim the patent. I still think personally that the system creates a potentially toxic codependency between science and financial private interest that inherently leads to corruption. But it's far from what is being claimed here. Plus, these people who are buying into Plandemic love capitalism and think there's nothing wrong with it, so they wouldn't even have the same issues with it that I have. Hospitals are inflating the COVID-19 death toll by inaccurately labeling non-COVID-related deaths as COVID-related deaths. This claim revolves around the idea that hundreds of thousands of people in hospitals who died from unrelated conditions were being listed as having died from COVID in the early stages of the pandemic, which exaggerated the overall death toll of COVID in order to push a lockdown agenda and ultimately force vaccines on the public. This claim originated from a CDC report that supposedly admitted that only 6% of deaths reported in the COVID mortality numbers were actually from COVID, and that the other 94% had all died of unrelated causes. And of the 153,504 people who had been reported as having died of COVID at the time, only 9,210 of them were actually from COVID. Donald Trump even shared this claim on Twitter. In actuality, the report had been completely misinterpreted. The 6% number represented cases in which COVID-19 was the only cause of death. The other 94% were comorbidity cases in which two or more conditions, including COVID-19, were present at the time of death. Even once this detail was pointed out, it led to a general attitude amongst COVID deniers that people were being marked as having died of COVID even if they had actually died of cancer or a heart attack, but happened to have COVID at the time, and that it was still inflating COVID numbers. This shows a general misunderstanding of comorbidity and the fact that having COVID-19 can exacerbate existing conditions and make them lethal. For instance, someone who has cancer might be able to survive with treatment and ultimately go into remission, but getting COVID-19 can worsen their condition and lead to death. Someone might have a COVID-19-induced heart attack. In fact, as the numbers show, most deaths from COVID-19 are as a result of other conditions worsened or brought on by COVID-19. To put this into perspective, almost nobody has ever died from HIV or AIDS. People with HIV who have passed away died from the fact that HIV destroys your immune system, makes your body completely unable to fight off any infections, and ultimately you die from one of those infections. Only a tiny percentage of AIDS sufferers have died from quote-unquote wasting syndrome, where you die from significant weight loss and muscle deterioration caused by having the virus, and can therefore say you died exclusively from HIV. By the same pandemic logic, HIV-AIDS also is a hoax and doesn't kill people because, on paper, these people all died from pneumonia, tuberculosis, and meningitis. But let's operate from the premise that the COVID death rate numbers aren't reliable because of the way that comorbidity and the existence of multiple conditions on death certificates muddies the waters and makes it difficult to know for certain which deaths were actually caused by COVID-19. And we'll consider for a second that maybe doctors are being fast and loose with adding COVID-19 to death certificates. Let's instead look at total deaths per year in the U.S. compared to the total U.S. population each of those years from 2010 to 2021. 2010. 2.4 million deaths, 309 million population, and a 0.79 death rate. 2011. 2.5 million deaths, 311 million population, a 0.79 death rate. 2012. 2.5 million deaths, 314 million population, a 0.8 death rate. 2013. 
2.6 million deaths, 316 million population, and a 0.82 death rate. 2014. 2.6 million deaths, 318 million population, and a 0.82 death rate. 2015. 2.7 million deaths, 320 million population, and a 0.84 death rate. 2016. 2.7 million deaths, 323 million population, a 0.84 death rate. 2017. 2.8 million deaths, 325 million population, and a 0.86% death rate. 2018. 2.8 million deaths, 327 million population, a 0.86 death rate. 2019. 2.8 million deaths, 329 million population, and a 0.87 death rate. And 2020. 3.3 million deaths. 331 million population, and a 1.01 death rate. In a decade where the average increase in yearly deaths was 42,934 people, and there seems to be a pattern where the death rate adjusted for population only seems to grow by about 0.02% every two years. Overall, U.S. deaths in 2020 grew by 500,976 people from the previous year, and the death rate increased by a full 0.14% on a year when it was supposed to stay the same as the previous year. And there was only one variable in 2020 that was different from every other year. You can discredit the COVID death numbers, but there's no ignoring what this data clearly points to. And you might say that 1.01% is statistically insignificant. It's only 1% of the population. If 2020's US death rate by population had remained consistent with the pattern from previous years at 0.87%, then 2.8 million people would have died. That's roughly 479,091 extra human beings who died from COVID-19. And that was after all the social distancing and lockdown provisions. That is a lot of fucking people. And this number is actually higher than the reported 377,883 COVID deaths in 2020, which is consistent with a January 2021 scientific study that suggested that COVID deaths are actually likely being underreported rather than inflated. Hospitals were being pressured by the CDC and the government to add COVID as a cause of death at hospitals and are incentivized with more funding to do so being paid $13,000 for each COVID patient they admit and $39,000 for each patient they put on a ventilator by Medicare. The reimbursement amounts are true, but completely standard for any type of patient in a hospital. Medicare and Medicaid pay average reimbursement fees for all types of conditions being treated. And the reason why putting a patient on a ventilator pays out so much more money is because it costs money to put a patient on a ventilator and pay the technician to run it. And the CDC offers guidelines for how to interpret whether a death was COVID-related, but whether or not they are pressuring hospitals to assign COVID deaths is a moot point considering the data we just looked at. Statistically, the numbers are more likely underreported than exaggerated. So if the CDC is trying to secretly pressure hospitals into inflating COVID numbers, they're totally failing. The government is trying to cover up the fact that hydroxychloroquine was an effective treatment for COVID-19 and punishing doctors for prescribing it, and that there had been a survey polling 2,300 doctors in 30 countries, and hydroxychloroquine was ranked as the most effective way to treat the virus. 
The study was real, but it wasn't ranking which treatments were most effective. It was ranking which treatments doctors thought would become the frontrunner for being the most effective. It was essentially asking these doctors their opinion on which medication would be most used to treat COVID-19. No long-term studies had been conducted on the actual efficacy of using the medication to treat the virus. As a matter of fact, despite the fact that the medication wasn't FDA-approved for use in treating COVID-19 because it hadn't been properly tested for safety, they gave hospitals an emergency use authorization to treat severe COVID patients with hydroxychloroquine, and doctors were prescribing it to patients. And they were seeing that it wasn't proving particularly effective. However, in a press conference, President Trump endorsed the medication and claimed he was taking it, which caused a huge surge in doctors across the U.S. prescribing it. And as a result, the American Medical Association came out and asked doctors to stop prescribing it, not because they were trying to cover up its effectiveness or stop people from having access to it that needed it, but precisely because it wasn't proving particularly effective against the virus and the skyrocket in prescriptions to COVID-19 was causing a shortage of the medication for patients who it was actually effective for and who needed it like people with malaria and arthritis. Dr. Fauci called hydroxychloroquine a medication only based on anecdotal data, and the American Medical Association threatened to revoke the license of any doctor prescribing it. This is a classic straw man argument. Fauci did not say that hydroxychloroquine was a medicine entirely based on anecdotal data. He said its effectiveness against COVID-19 specifically was based on anecdotal data. The AMA did not threaten to revoke the license of doctors prescribing hydroxychloroquine for its FDA-approved purposes. It said that prescribing hydroxychloroquine, a medication that is not FDA-approved for treating COVID-19, to patients with COVID-19 that were not in life-threatening need of it was considered medical malpractice, and the resultant consequence could be a loss of their medical license. The human immune system is dependent on touching and exposing ourselves to bacteria and viruses, and so sheltering in place, staying inside, constant hand washing and disinfecting, and social distancing is actually lowering our immune system and making us more vulnerable to catching COVID-19. This is referring to hygienic theory, which is a real thing. You've probably heard countless times that kids need to be able to play in the dirt and get exposed to germs because it actually makes their immune system stronger. However, Stopping yourself from being exposed to germs, bacteria, and viruses doesn't lower your immune system. It actually strengthens it. The reason why it's bad to do this is because your immune system actually becomes too strong and starts reacting more dramatically to smaller threats. Keeping your kids away from germs by boiling their water, not allowing them to play in the dirt, and disinfecting everything they touch will make them more likely to be sick. Not because it's weakening their immune system and making them more susceptible to common viruses that they should be able to handle, but because it's making their bodies overreact to less threatening germs and work harder to fight them, which makes them more sick. It's the same reason why parents are supposed to let kids eat peanuts and eggs as young as possible. Doctors used to recommend not letting kids have peanuts and eggs early on in case they might have an allergy to them. However, they discovered that delaying exposure to these foods was increasing the development of allergies in children. And so they switched it and started recommending exposing kids to them as early as possible, which decreased allergy development. With this one simple clarification, you can see that by the argument that Plandemic is trying to make, sheltering in place, removing ourselves from exposure to germs actually makes us less likely to get the potentially deadly COVID-19 virus, even if it temporarily makes us more vulnerable to non-deadly viruses. Not to say that sheltering in place is or was the objectively correct response to COVID-19, I don't want to litigate that here, but just simply that Plandemic's specific argument accidentally proves the opposite of what it's trying to say about lockdowns. 
In Plandemic, Judy Mikovits is also presented as a revolutionary scientist who published a groundbreaking scientific study that found that the use of animal and human fetal tissue in medicines was causing a massive outbreak of chronic illnesses, and that she was arrested for trying to expose the truth, and that the entire thing was covered up by Dr. Fauci. The truth was that none of her research had ever had much of an impact on any field of scientific study. In 2009, she and a few other colleagues published a paper claiming a link between chronic fatigue syndrome and mouse retrovirus after conducting a series of 20 sample experiments in which they obtained two positive results and then altered the conditions of the other 18 until they all became positive. Shortly after it was published, two of the other authors of the paper re-examined the samples and discovered that they had been contaminated in a way that rendered the results unusable. The paper was eventually fully retracted after the results could not be replicated in 10 other studies. In 2011, Mikovits was fired from Whitmore Peterson Institute, where she had conducted the study over disputes about the integrity of her work, and she came under investigation for alleged manipulation of data in her publications. She was later arrested and jailed for stealing computer data and notebooks from WPI, but the charges were eventually dropped by the Institute because of unrelated legal troubles that they needed to focus on. She published a bogus, unfounded study and then was arrested for stealing. That's it. Some of the biggest evidence of how unreliable she was comes from the fact that she allowed the pandemic video to describe her as having published a groundbreaking study that found proof that links chronic fatigue syndrome to the use of mouse fetal tissues, despite the fact that in 2012, she conducted another study attempting to reprove her findings, but the study came back negative and she admitted that there was no link. Plandemic quickly became enmeshed in more controversy as tech platforms like YouTube and Facebook started taking the video down. It would keep popping up on different channels, and the company would remove it again, leading to outcry from Q-believers, COVID deniers, and general free speech absolutionists that free speech was being silenced. This is a bit of a complicated issue. Many people outside of the right and far right end of this political spectrum would argue that this is not a free speech issue. Free speech is your right to say whatever you want within a reasonable degree without being silenced or imprisoned by the government. Whereas in this situation, it's private companies that have determined that you violated their pre-established terms of service and rescinded your privilege to post content on their privately owned platform. Freedom of speech is about the ability to speak publicly. Getting deplatformed on YouTube is like getting kicked off of private property for saying something the owner of said private property doesn't like. And I agree with this. It's objectively correct. This is not a free speech issue. However, in response to this argument, people would say that private tech companies have so dominated and achieved control over the landscape of how we communicate and receive information that, certainly, there's some special considerations to make. It's not a cut-and-dry public versus private issue when private companies own discourse and information distribution for the entire world. That's like making the argument that because Immortan Joe owned all of the water in Mad Max Fury Road, he therefore was perfectly justified in hoarding it from people and only doling out in small periodic amounts. Or, if you want a more realistic example, it would be like how a bunch of actual private companies in the real world, such as Nestle, really do own a lot of the clean drinking water in certain developing countries and withhold it from the people there. I think there is some validity to this. As discussed in an earlier episode in the series, there is something genuinely problematic about how much power we've handed over to these tech companies, and though in this specific situation, most rational people would agree with, or at least be ambivalent to, YouTube taking down this blatant piece of propaganda filled with lies and misinformation. What's to stop YouTube from executing their whim in some future situation in which we don't agree with it? Their decisions are not based on whether or not they think it's ethical or right to host the misinformation. It's a financial decision where they've determined that doing this will make them the most profit or keep them out of trouble for controversy that might bring them less profit. This could easily swing in the other direction. In theory, it should be fine for some awful bullshit to go out into the world like pandemic and for people to be able to decide for themselves what they think about it and for good ideas to win out over bad ideas is in the end. We shouldn't have to shield people from 
misinformation like children. That's true. But just like the special considerations we should probably give to this free speech debate when it comes to private social media companies, by the same token, there's more nuance to deplatforming and censorship in the age of social media algorithms unthinkingly blasting out a massive amount of messages and ideas to billions of people based on nothing more than how much of an emotional reaction they can get and with very little context helping to validate their trustworthiness. When opponents of deplatforming cry censorship or say that people are being treated like children with the way that platforms take down videos, the thing that they're intentionally leaving out and not incorporating into the discussion is that human beings are genuinely incredibly vulnerable to misinformation at the gargantuan scale that is pumped out on social media, especially people who aren't as savvy with technology and just don't have a grasp of how misleading information can be. Instead, these people want a dynamic where all ideas are put forth with equal weight. Misinformation is given the same consideration and platform as facts. Pushing back against inaccurate claims with evidence is considered silencing somebody's truth, and any attempt to debunk or deprioritize the propagation of these lies is considered an Orwellian act. This is the perfect example of how bad faith actors and conspiracy theorists exploit the intersection between social media algorithms and human nature to spread misinformation at a large scale. There is a split dynamic occurring here where a massive amount of misinformation is being piped out into the ecosystem of ideas to the point where it becomes difficult to separate fact from fiction or individually verify each piece of information to the fullest extent. For any person, it would be physically impossible to thoroughly research and verify every single piece of information you come across. It just can't be done. To compensate for this, most people have entered into a social contract where we generally take most information given to us at face value and in good faith to be true and accurate, and only focus on a smaller percentage of more important information to put through the more strict scrutiny of personally researching and verifying. Information such as the reason why the sky is blue or who directed all the Transformers movies is generally accepted as true by most people when they read it in a textbook or on a reputable website and does not require any kind of further extensive research to prove. To do otherwise is not possible. However, this social contract just doesn't really work in the age of social media where information delivery is democratized to anybody. A piece of information put out into the world by the top expert on the subject is just as likely to reach the same amount of people as a piece of information on the same subject put out into the world by a random person with zero expertise or training on the subject and possibly ill intentions with what they're claiming. In fact, the false claims might be more likely to reach many more people because the measured and accurate take by the expert is likely much more nuanced, and the algorithm hates nuance. It likes simple, clean, emotionally resonant ideas. We cannot take things at face value under this social contract anymore, and yet we all have a lifetime of training to do just that, and also don't have the physical time in the day to do anything else. Bad faith actors know this and take advantage of it to spread lies. For the sake of this discussion, let's coin the term the economy of good faith in the marketplace of information. We all have a certain amount of good faith currency that we choose to spend with certain people in exchange for information that we trust without spending hours researching it to personally verify it. We choose to spend that with people we've chosen to trust, and in exchange they give us information in good faith. Sometimes we learn that we've spent that currency poorly and receive information back in bad faith lies, misinformation, deceit. And like we do with businesses we spend our real money at, we never spend our currency with that person or source again. And over time, we slowly learn who is most deserving of our good faith. And others eventually learn that they want to spend their currency with you in exchange for knowledge and information that you possess. Bad faith actors in the overwhelmingly fast-paced and infinite marketplace of information that has been created by social media algorithms obliterates that system. And yet it's the only one we know how to use and the only one we have time for. And so in that paradigm, bad faith actors can get a massive amount of people to believe lies simply because they don't have time to make sure they aren't lies. 
And there's little we can do about it as long as we're so strongly dependent on social media platforms as a primary source of communication and information gathering. You either believe the misinformation, which is goal A for the bad faith actor, or you push back against the misinformation where you will then be called a sheep or an idiot because you can't provide an on-the-spot dissertation proving why this random lie you were just confronted with isn't true. Or if you are well-equipped for the situation and can provide the dissertation, the source of the information you are giving will be called into question and trivialized as being lies and misinformation in and of themselves. You'll be left thinking that even if the source of your information weren't reputable beyond doubt, and even if the sources of the bad faith actors' claims, usually baseless YouTube videos or memes, were potentially valid or had the potential to be correct, what makes their source of information more inherently trustworthy while your sources are automatically lies? If your sources of information are dismissed outright because, from the perspective of the bad faith actor, everyone is lying or the deep state is controlling all information, then don't their sources of information also have just as much likelihood of being false or lies as yours do, they've created an absolute paradigm where nothing that anybody, including them or their source of information, can be trusted. But this won't discourage the bad faith actor or make them realize or own up to their hypocrisy. Because this is goal B for the bad faith actor in the event that they don't succeed in goal A, creating a dynamic where everything is possibly a lie, which also means that everything is possibly true. Nothing means anything because anything could be a lie, but anything could also be true. In this chaotic vacuum of objectivity, where any random thought out of any person's head is simultaneously possibly true or false, anyone is basically free to craft their own vision of reality within that vacuum. And it is equally as valid as any other version of reality. And nothing about your reality can validate that reality. It's a self-contained cipher for breaking down the idea of objective truth and splintering off into a new manifested reality in a way that no fact or piece of information can invalidate. The argument that's just taken place has actively helped to destroy the concept of objective truth or reality and help that person recede further into their chosen reality. I feel like this thing has just broken you. <laughs> I feel like this has just broken you. Like, like I know what you're saying and I agree, but also you've been, you're just dead. I think you're dead. I don't think, I don't think uh, Andrew McLuhan Price exists anymore. I think you're just a, a, a shambling corpse of gotta just do it. You could, you could be right. You could be right. I could be dead. I think this thing has just, I think this QAnon arc has just broken you. That's for sure. It has broken me, but maybe I'm dead. Who knows? The interplay between our dependence on social media, the way that their algorithms propagate information, the vulnerability of most human minds to being manipulated within this dynamic, and the existence of bad faith actors with ill intentions willing to exploit the dynamic to its fullest extent surely creates an imperative to re-examine our view of free speech, suppression, and censorship in a digital communication age. But if one group of people wants to have the conversation about how private text stranglehold over communication changes the definition of violating free speech, then they need to be willing to have the conversation about how the way that information is spread, who is allowed to spread it, and how people are manipulated by it changes our definition of what censorship is. And in that light, can we say whether or not it's okay to take down videos like Plandemic, deplatform QAnon influencers, and silence blatant lies and misinformation on the internet? I think the more important course of action, rather than lobbying a bunch of tech oligarchs to decide which voices do and don't deserve to be heard on their platforms, is to take algorithms and advertising out of social media. De-incentivize these platforms to boost sensationalized, poorly vetted information in order to keep eyeballs glued to the screen. And transform social media into a decentralized, exploratory platform where you have to seek out information rather than have it spoon-fed to you in a radicalizing feedback 
feedback loop, which would in turn create a better system where good ideas truly do rise to the top and misinformation stays in the fringe corners for the top 1% of people who are truly seeking it out. But considering that that probably won't happen anytime soon, I don't think anyone truly knows the right thing to do currently. But that certainly wouldn't stop us from trying things out to mix results. And so, we're in the thick of a global pandemic. But not the COVID one. That's there too. But I'm talking about the pandemic of misinformation. The hyperpartisan polarization that had been slowly building in our country since the 1960s and possibly beyond had all been culminating to this moment. When the rift between our realities was so wide that it was impossible for two halves of the country, maybe the world, to come together and agree on whether or not anything that was happening in this bleak sequence of events was even real. But it's not quite done yet. Yes, when we started this thing back in the beginning of October, it was supposed to just be QAnon month. But over time, we realized that the story was much larger. And now, seven episodes, nearly 100,000 words, and almost two months later, things clearly didn't go the way we predicted. And yes, I know we said this was going to be the last part, but then we recorded it, and it was way too long. And so it must be done. We're going full end of a YA novel movie franchise and breaking out the final chapter into two parts because, well, do you want to sit through a six-hour episode? So next week, seriously, for real this time, we head into the very end of the story. Kidnappings, protestings in the streets, high-speed chases, time travel, a bitter struggle between warring factions, the most contentious presidential election in American history, and the culmination of it all on January 6th, 2021. Hey now, hey now, don't dream it's over. Tune into the monumental conclusion next week on the Deep Cuts QAnon series, part six, The Final Frontier, Electric Boogaloo, The New Blood, In Space, Twilight Saga, Breaking Dawn, part two. And we're so sorry to that guy that's mad on Twitter. I'm Dave Baker. And I'm Andrew Price. You can find me on the internet at heydavebaker.com or on TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter at xdavebakerx. You can find my comics, Everyone is Tulip, Fuck Off Squad, Night Hunters, and Star Trek Voyager, Seven's Reckoning, in comic book stores or wherever you get finer books. Andrew McLuhan Price. Where can people find you on the internet? You can find me hijacking a locomotive, bringing it up to speed, ramming it towards the nearest end of the track, ramming it directly into the concrete barrier at the end of the track, breaking off of the track, derailing the train, skidding through barriers and fences and across parking lots and right into the nearest Arby's where I will smash into the Arby's and I will get out and I'll say, Dave! (laughs) Eat Arby's! Release the Arby's memo! Release the Big Montana memo! (laughs) We're not going to release the Andrew whatever that kid's name is memo anymore we want the arby's memo now no after that (laughs) both of those things but definitely that guy do you think that guy like do you think once he had his weird little cult of like internet fans living with him and having three ways with him in his mom's basement you think he was into arby's you think he just ate arby's that he was like we we now exclusively eat arby's he ate arby's every day of his fucking life Wait, what's his last name again? Just for just for continuity, so I can remember, so I can make jokes. What's his last name? Uh, Andrew. His what? name is uh, the f- 
oh, his name was Austin Steinbart. Oh, oh, Austin Steinbart. Austin, yeah, Austin Steinbart. Yeah, I don't know, man. I, I feel like Austin Steinbart, despite having had obvious mental issues, uh, I feel like he's a man of taste. I feel like he doesn't like Austin Austin Steinbarbies. Do you think uh, when he got out of jail, they made a special Arby's meal there called the the Austin Stein Barbie? Now nah, you're, nah, that doesn't, that doesn't, there's no, there's no, there's no more joke there than what you had. I was trying to build on it. In the same way that they ha- they used to have the Arby sign in Roswell, New Mexico, where I grew up, with the UFO sh- crashed into the into the hat in uh in Cave Creek, Arizona. The Arby's there is called Austin Stein Barbies. <laughs> that is the button for the episode <laughs> and you can also find me at dapricerights.com where you can get my book deadbolt ai private eye you can go to arby's.com where you can order arby's to be delivered to your house from the nearest location and you can also follow deep cuts on a variety of social media you can follow us on facebook deep cuts podcast you can join our facebook group the deep cuts podcast facebook group you can join us on instagram at deep cuts pod you can follow us on tiktok at mystery treehouse you can follow me on tiktok at dead boy detective where i make music and talk about weird facts and observations about movies and things and you can follow us on uh i think that's it maybe that's all of our shit um you can get some deep cuts merch, some shirts and some hats and some fanny packs and some other stuff with deep cuts graphics on them by going to deepcutspod.com and clicking on the shop or you can just go to bitly.com slash deep cuts merch. You can also get uh, Mystery Treehouse Investigation Agency Junior Sleuth patches by just going to deepcutspod.com and it's right there on the front page. And you can you can start a change.org petition to get Dave to eat a beef and cheddar. Never. It'll never happen. You're hearing it right now. I will never do this. As long as we do this show, I one I I would rather I would rather see you buried and dead. That's the only way I would Jesus do this. Jesus Christ. That's, that's I will far. never eat Arby's. I will never eat Arby's. It will never happen. But you would eat Arby's if I was buried and died? Out of respect for you, <laughs> like at my at res- my funeral, <laughs> at, your, at your funeral, I would eat Arby's at your funeral, but I wouldn't be happy about it, and I'd be probably crying. I'd probably be be crying more about having to eat Arby's than I would about you dying. There would just be a ceremony where, like, there would be like a huge baby grand piano and Sarah McLaughlin, who's a, who's- a huge baby grand. Wouldn't it just be ba- baby gr- grand piano? Baby grands are still pretty big. They're not, they're not as big as grand pianos, but they're still uh, like comparatively to like other things. They're, they're, they're huge. Okay. All right. But, uh, yeah, the, the, the piano would be there. Sarah McLaughlin, who's a close personal friend, would be sitting at the, ta- at the piano and just plunking out in the arms of an angel as you're just crying and eating a beef and cheddar far away from me. Oh, it's so good. He was right. He was right. No, no. So no. See that. So that song ends, and everyone thinks that I'm crying because of that. And I'm then I slowly turn to camera, and I'm like, I just I don't want the world to see me because I don't know that I like eating this Arby's no more. 
for somehow somehow I don't understand the correlation between those two songs and yet I completely do. Like the, yeah. like part of me is like I get why you why you bridge that gap, but also I have no idea why. You know what? No one does. The only people that really do employees at Arby's, which is why we have to go and find out. It'll never happen. It will never in a million years happen. I don't know what you'd have to tell me. Well, you, you'd have to blackmail me to do that. There's no way I would do that on my Don't phone. say that. I have like a year's worth of blackmail material. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, two two years worth. What am I talking about? Two years. Two years. Two years of, of blackmail material. Yeah. Well, you know, if we somehow end up doing something related to Arby's and or you force me to go eat Arby's. That's how you know something behind the scenes went horribly wrong. Someone's dead. We won't, we wouldn't, we would never talk about that on the air though. We would never talk about that on the air. But if, if, if something really bad happened, there would just be like, there would just be an Arby's episode that just showed up in the feed. Yeah. If, if, if there's ever, if Dave ever eats Arby's, you know that his entire world has been completely just toppled and he's, he's just picking up the pieces. Andrew walked into the bathroom at the Mystery Treehouse and just found me naked on the floor, covered in my own <laughs> urine and, and excrement, weeping in the fetal position. And he was like, buddy, it's time to do the Arby's episode. Deep Cuts is a production by Boy Genius Media. If you'd like to find this show and others like it, please visit boygeniusmedia.com or deepcutspod.com. If you want to join in on post-episode discussions, please join the Deep Cuts Podcast Facebook group. Finally, subscribe to our YouTube channel for additional video content. The incidental music for this episode was created by D. Catalano, whose music can be found at wekeepoddhours.bandcamp.com and the Dead Boy Detectives.